Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. Decked drawer systems. I've always loved Decked, as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat Get yourself free shipping. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, Pat, we're, we're, we're discussing... Uh, Pat Durkin's here. Um, and, and Pat writes a lot about death, so this is the death episode. It's like a Halloween special about death. And Pat, nearing death himself, uh, was just sharing with us like a old man secret. Lay it on us. Yeah, my old man secret that seems to be impressing people here is I got hearing aids for the first time about two and a half years ago. And one of the things that's cool about them is it's run. They run off an app on my iPhone, and so if I'm in a crowd and the sound's a little bit too loud, I can just hit turn on the app, sync my my um, hearing aids, and then turn things down a little bit. And I, you can actually um, then control it too. If there's certain pitches that are bothering you, like from I have grandkids. If oh, you can tune them out. You can kind of turn it down <laughs> a little bit, so because you, you know grandkids have they make noises that really irritate. My, my left ear. And so, so wow. I, so, That's really specific. So, so I, I'm, trying to get, I'm trying to get better at these things because I, when, huh. I when I walk into certain environments now, I'm learning before I go in there, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when you have an allergy like I do for dogs and cats, I take a pill before I go into people's homes that have dogs and cats. So now when I walk mm. in my grandkids' settings, I got adjust the hearing aid. Uh, so wow. well, that's great, man. Oh, what one, brand do you, are you like a brand evangelist for what kind of hearing no, aid you got? I, I didn't know what I have. One yeah. thing I found fascinating about those hearing aids was yesterday, Pat called me oh, yeah. and <laughs> he, was was, like a, 
he was like calling me through his hearing aids. Yes, I've heard. Pat. I have a friend who has God, the same man. thing. Well, well, Pat's like the bionic no, man. Yeah. I want to get a set now. <laughs> I, was, I was calling Seth, so he let me in, and then he answers the door just just as as my um my my phone starts telling me. You know, you can't connect to this guy, leave a message, that kind of thing. So Seth's talking to me face-to-face. Meanwhile, I'm getting all this stuff on my iPhone about, <laughs> um, you know, how you want to answer, leave a message, all this kind of stuff. So somewhere in my recordings is all this Seth background information yeah, on it, my phone. You left a 10-minute long wow. voicemail. Of <laughs> our <laughs> conversation. This is making me, this is making me look forward to getting there. I got the hearing loss you get from shooting guns. That's what I That's have. That's what you have, yeah. That's what I have. Which is the... Left ear. It's the ear, like when you put your cheek to the gun, it's, so my right ear, because I'm left-handed. Right. And they can tell what, what frequency you yeah. lose and right. it's from being around. Yeah. And, and also like duck hunting when some dude rings one off next oh, to your face. Th- the worst was, was back in the 90s. Um, it was what common before people really understood them. It was um, muzzle brakes. Mm-hmm. And... They eventually got something you could turn them on and turn them off, so it wasn't so bad. But I, I blasted my left ear twice with those muzzle brakes without really realizing what I was getting into. And it was like um, I knew when the rifle went off because all of a sudden the freaking world just collapsed. Yeah. It, just no, nothing going on in my head, just shock. Yeah, I'm, I'm at, it's hard for me to decide what to do about it with, with my kids because, like, we just had youth duck season, right? So I took my boy out, and I, my older boy and my little boy went out with us. And um, I put the big earphones on them, but then they can't hear anything. Right. So you're screaming and yelling at them to do something, and they have no idea you're screaming and yelling at them to do it. You know. You know what today? Cal- Callahan was there. Callahan was about. He's like, I can't, I can't handle it. <laughs> like I don't like being around them that much anyway. You know, but when they can't hear. <laughs> you know what today's technology? They have no, ones that they don't like those. What? I don't, I, they don't like it. Somehow I put them on them. They get. They don't like it. Really? You need to get, you get them some hearing aids like Pat. Yes. Well, those, like, are those like an ear protection too? Like no, an ear pro? No, no. No, you need to put no. ear protection on too. No. A, buddy, no. a buddy of mine, I don't know if you ever met Tony Paul's kill. He's from, he's from farm family in Wisconsin. No. Uh-uh. He, during the Gulf War. Works over at Vortex now. No. Okay. He was a Marine sniper. During the Gulf War, he, uh, in a bunker, shooting in a bunker somehow, yeah. like, destroyed his ears. Yeah. Um, and he wears some souped up hearing aids, but now what he does for hearing protection when he's shooting, he was kind of, he's not supposed to do this, but he just turns them down hmm. when he's shooting. And he's mm-hmm. like, I don't know if that's really the right approach. Gotta be making it worse. <laughs> hey, uh, let me sure. say something. If we're talking about hearing, you know, my, we are, my we right are ear, about hearing. are we, what, are, what, <laughs> what was that? It, my right ear, I've lost a significant amount of hearing to, to the point that it affects my life, you know, like, oh, I no, I know you're deaf and I'll get out. my yeah. ear. I can't hear the direction dogs Clay can't or hear animals where gobblers are yeah, coming. Yeah, yeah. Devastating to a turkey hey, hunter. So that, that started happening when I was in the ninth grade and it's unknown, you know, probably triggered by shooting guns, but but the hearing when I went when I was like thirty five to you know just a few years ago yeah uh, to the hearing specialist they told me if I had come when I was a kid younger that that a hearing aid would have helped but basically she was like man your that part of your brain is starting to shut down wow and you'll probably never get it back and so I actually have a hearing aid that I never wear because it doesn't help so wow. point being if you have hearing trouble don't wait till you're like. Yeah, too old. Well, you got you got a legitimate handicap where you can't tell where your dogs are barking that, from. Yeah, it, it it affects my world. Yeah, 
Can't all, tell. All my other senses are extremely heightened, though. I'm sure. <laughs> That's a no, but I mean, they, they might be because people say that like shit makes up for it. you. Ever read about sense. that? You ever read about that gal, Helen Keller? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, before we leave, Pat and Old Man <laughs> Wisdom talk. I was well, chatting with him yesterday. I feel like I got to wedge this in. No, no, go ahead, man. Uh, Pat was saying that uh, you can't. We we're talking about running and arthritic knees and stuff like that, and me being 43 and how I was feeling a little bit in my knees and. All, all that, all this. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna abridge the story a little bit, but in the end, he says, "Look, you can't stop aging, but you can fight it." And then he said, "And I'm gonna fight it to the bitter end." This guy said, mm. "Yeah," and I took that home with me last night. That's and I motivational. Just, I, uh, yeah, exactly. Mm. I was feeling uh, super inspired. Yes. Well, you have no choice. Yeah, but you might be having like a... <laughs> no, you do. Some but people he, don't fight it at all. Well, part no. of the fighting is having the... Like, I was juggling with Pat before we started about it. I was like, man, that's some legit old man stuff to be able to control your hearing aids on your phone. Yeah. That would be a major inhibitor for most people, mm-hmm. just technology. And I mean, gets, that's... Yeah, he, so he, that's that's fighting it to the bitter end, might be. And he keeps getting tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I feel is like part is of it too, man. Is like that he, true? Oh, yeah, no, he's yeah. like he's like... He looks really? like a like a chef from Nashville, man. <laughs> do you wow. have one that says "Go Pack Go"? No, no, that's that's silly. I wouldn't do that. Those are He's wearing long pants right now. Those are Pat's tattoos. Do you have? Uh, uh, that's this guy right here. Pat, do you have plans for another one? Wow. Um, right now, the only one I get would probably be my wedding ring because I've been wearing oh. been wearing the. Um, no, then you look like oh, you've been to jail, man. My wife and I are about to do that. That's the most jail-looking thing, man. <laughs> well, then, then I, I want to see it. teardrops <laughs> for every, you <laughs> yeah. know, like fence. No. Teardrops killed. look like you've been in jail. A wedding ring on <laughs> tattooed. Come on, tattoo looks like you've been to jail. Bad. Really? Okay. So Steve's Steve's nixing the idea. Okay. Tracy Crane's here. You haven't been on in a long time. No, a little while. It's been a long time. Yeah. Wait, when when was the last time the uh, when you were on the turkey episode? No, I think it was after my first deer hunt with you two fine fellas. Oh, yeah. oh is that it? Mm. I believe so. Yeah, because because you even kind of blocked it out. Yeah, Tracy got sidelined by having a baby, but you um <laughs> still sidelined. <laughs> you still feeling it a little bit? Life never returns to the way it was before. Yeah. At least I don't anticipate it. I think that's returning how it's supposed to, to work. Tracy it? came. Yeah, she was on the show. I wish I knew that before. <laughs> you can go watch Tracy on Netflix hunting turkeys. Mm. Um, crying. Ice fi- uh, crying on there. Ice fishing, <laughs> like her first ice fishing expedition. Crying there too. Probably. <laughs> Did you cry for ice no. fishing? No, no, no. We, didn't cry. <laughs> we didn't cry that day. Tracy, uh, yeah, like antelope hunting. Your first antelope hunting trip. Totally. And then, like, vanished. Well, yeah. You're still down here. All, yeah. If I was you, I'd be down here all the time. No, no. I still work here. No, no. But you're not. You haven't been out, <laughs> mi- you haven't been out mixing it up lately. No, no. Not with you guys. No. She has but, plans to, though. Hey, people, people wouldn't know this. I, I wouldn't know it. I mean, maybe it's not something we want to talk about, but... Tracy's like the heart and soul of Meat Eater. Oh, for sure. Oh, I don't know about that, Clay. That is true. That is not it's true. true. I agree. Because, that... you know, like, people might assume that, like, well, she's been on the show. I mean, like, people talk to me about the Meat Eater shows, and they're like, or, or I might say, hey, Tracy's my boss. And they'll be like, yeah, wouldn't she on the show? And they're trying to connect, like, where she fits, because people only see, like, the, the faces of Meat Eater that are on the podcast yeah, or on yeah, the show. Yeah, yeah, They don't but realize. That's what I, but Tracy's the real deal. She's like a puppeteer. Thank you. Uh, I don't know if I put it that way. <laughs> thank, um, thank you, Tracy. How, can people thank find you, out guys. where? Can people find out? I don't want to say this, but can people find out where you live? 
Yeah. Oh. I mean, why would they give a shit where I live? Well, I was going to talk about what my boy did in New York. Oh, certainly. Go right ahead. I don't want to talk about that because I don't want to give people an idea. Well, I mean, go ahead. I have no problem with that. My boy you don't hunts, need to give my boy the address. Yard. <laughs> 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 and uh, and he, I told him he's got to try to lock. He's, did he lock up his permission for this year? Oh, sure did. Oh, okay, I think he, he arrived at my home maybe like two weeks ago. It was like, hey, um, can I come back again? <laughs> Have you given away that spot to anybody else? You trained him well. No, I know. I need to what get him What is he hunting? What's that? Whitetail. He got a... Oh, he, for Yeah, real. like, got a whitetail door right in her yard. Wow. Oh, he, he was tickled. The only thing that will be more challenging for him this year is we took that little that little shack down. Where we hid? Yeah, where you guys were leaning <laughs> up against. <laughs> That'll make um, him a better hunter. Oh, no. He, <laughs> listen, he did some hard hunts, man. He did some hard hunts, and that was his easy hunt. He, he'd seem to really enjoy that one the most. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was a good time. Uh, all right. Oh, here's an interesting thing, man, and this fits with the Halloween the, the Halloween special, is uh, if you – are you aware of this now, Seth? When, like, our new episodes, like, we just we just put five – we have – we launched five new episodes, so like, like season 10, part A. Um on Netflix and in there's one we have a Flintlock episode and in the I, I can't even believe it made the show but in the Flintlock episode we find a bizarre little haunted snowman yeah thing I'm surprised yeah. it made a show too but I don't I'm know why they, they put it, yeah it like I kind of forgot about it then the editor found it and we're like oh that's funny we'll leave it in there and yeah. it's a little snowman wearing hunter's orange and I thought it was like a little effigy I don't know what it was like a warning it was set in the middle of the trail. Yep. And he had blaze orange vest and a blaze orange hat and little sticks for arms. <laughs> and he was maybe like, what, eight inches tall? Yep. Those look like arrows. No, like little pieces of grass or something. Yeah. Weird it ass. A, it was weird. Weird ass little thing. And in and it made the show where we talk about how it looks like it's like Blair Witch Projecty. <laughs> snowman out in the woods. A dude yesterday writes in that was his snowman and he even has <laughs> no way no, listen, he was hunting elk he was hunting elk with his old man they stopped made a little snowman took a picture of it he sent us the picture and he says then then they're watching the show and there's their snowman yeah wow it looks- he had a cow elk tag <laughs> yeah pennsylvania really? yeah pennsylvania the snowman wow. and here it is and i i went back this morning and looked at the episode Looked at the snowman in the episode and then looked at this because I was like, I'm double checking. You were this questioning guy. whether yeah. he this was guy telling the a truth. And uh, yeah, I went back and looked and it's identical. Well, you thought he went out and tried to make a snowman to match? Yeah. Well, I don't know. No, I, come on. <laughs> I, I thought that. Yeah, I just, I checked. Did he explain? I fact checked him. Like why Good. they decided to make a little snowman while they were hunting? <clears throat> no. No. You could write him back. You could like do a follow up I mean, interview he, with him. Did he cut a piece of his hunter's orange off his vest? I guess. I mean, that's oh, good. Yeah, I yeah. I think Yanni needs to open up a open up a combo. Why did he do this? Uh, so, yeah, so everybody knows the Pat's here. We were talking to him. Seth's here. Phil, the engineer. Corinne, Chester. We're gonna hey. preview Chester's new project. Well, oh, she still hasn't wait. got the green light on. I We're was going to say, about did anyways. you get confirmation about previewing the project He hasn't gotten the green today? light. He hasn't gotten the green I, light. I don't want to be annoying, so I don't keep asking him. <laughs> but I got a lot of good ideas, Tracy. <laughs> Clay Newcomb, Newcomb. Once again, the etiquette is flowing. <laughs> and uh, Giannis. Uh, a quick news item. This is pretty interesting. We, we did a whole episode on a guy that got toxoplasmosis from Wild Game. 
And a lot of people get it from, not a lot, I mean, there's not a lot of it out there, but people get it from wild game and toxoplasmosis, as we've covered extensively, is a disease you get from if you're eating undercooked meat and it passes, it has to pass through cat shit. But a wide variety of felines, wild felines, domestic felines can carry it. They have to shat on a, out on a piece of grass, let's say. It makes contact with grass. An herbivore, an ungulate, whatever, can eat the grass, can eat the cheat, and become infected with toxoplasmosis. So we had a guy from Hawaii, Danny Bolton, came on the show and talked about his trials and tribulations with toxoplasmosis. Then we followed up and covered some interesting research um, because there's this weird-ass deal with toxoplasmosis where it reduces your inhibitions, okay? So they were were doing research in Africa. They're doing research on hyenas. And it was – correct me if I'm wrong, Corinne. You you remember this. Mm -hmm. 100% of hyenas Mm -hmm. who contracted toxoplasmosis were killed by lions, I don't remember if it was. They were. They got the toxoplasmosis from lions. They got it through feline. It was the it was hyena cubs that were positive for toxoplasmosis. And they all positive hyena cubs due to loss of inhibition fall prey to a feline because they got closer to lions and their normal behavior might otherwise uh, dictate. Yeah, Yeah. so it's like this weird parasitic result where and it was brought up that like that a cat by distributing toxoplasmosis around makes his own job easier because his prey base becomes less yes. afraid yeah. grooming them essentially yeah, like yeah. you're like yeah creating easier prey base i guess there's no better way to yep. put it then we had this thing where there's an article that someone sent us and we covered about heightened entrepreneurship Entrepre- I always say that word wrong. Preneur- Entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial behavior. That's a good way to put it. Heightened entrepreneurial behavior on people who've had toxoplasmosis. Risk aversion. Mm. How, did they, how did they study this? I don't know. Can't remember. But here's the thing. There's a new article out. National Institute of Health. Oh, you guys know the, that movie Secret and Nim? Nope. Yeah, I know there's something about animated movie. Mouse, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is NIM the National Institute of Mental Health? It's about rats that get like experimented on and become super smart. And somehow they don't explain the movie. They wind up with a magic gemstone. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. National Institute. Love that movie. So this is National Institute of Health. Yeah. And this is the secret of NIH. NIMH is the National Institute of Mental Health. Yep. That's a real thing. It's a real thing. Oh. Based in Bethesda, Maryland. That's what my wife was telling my kids when we were watching Secret and Nim last night. But um, <laughs> but just to be clear, <laughs> side note fact: the institution has nothing to do with with the movie. It's like a fantasy movie. It takes That's place not in, the, true. in the woods. That's who's experimenting on the rats. Is it? Yeah, they inject the rats with a lime green with a lime green serum. Yep, you're and right. And one day the rats can read the instructions of how to unlock the cage. That's real deep. Okay. Real deep. <laughs> but check this out. National Institute of Health, a report out by them that increased risk of traffic accidents in subjects with latent toxoplasmosis, a retrospective case control study. 
And you go, yeah. Me and Pat are turning down our hearing aids. <laughs> worldwide, 30 to 60% of humans worldwide have latent toxoplasmosis. Huh. Hmm. And they go into the methods and all that garbage. So Danny Bolton, but the weird deal about Danny Bolton, who got toxoplasmosis, is he already has no inhibitions. Because mm. he... he he teaches off-road driving to special forces soldiers. So now that dude <laughs> is going to be a hazard. <laughs> He's going to be a hazard to himself and others. Wear your seatbelt, Danny. Uh, another parasite news. Uh, we had a guy write in to remind us something about this. And I want this is I'm taking dead serious. Is when Yanni and I had trichinosis. Um, we we're doing a lot of reading up on how long you. It's not very clearly understood how long you remain trick pause. Mm. Do you still have your trick pause T-shirt? I do. Yeah, we had these trick pause. We had trick pause T-shirts brought up, made up, but then someone pointed out that there's a venereal disease. What's it called? Uh, which one? <laughs> <laughs> the one I don't, I don't know. It starts a, with trick. There's a trick venereal disease. So we had when we got trichinosis, we had trick pause shirts made. But then but someone pointed out that it could be read the wrong way. I know that's why that's second round. Oh, that was the oh, second well, round of shirt because edition. it looked like you were announcing to the world. <laughs> People didn't take it the right way. Maybe um, you should put those trick pause T-shirts in the auction house of oddities. Mm. That's a great oh, idea. I don't. I, I might have made mine into the rag bin, man. No, we we should resurrect it. By the way, the uh, sexually transmitted infection is called trichomoniasis. Yeah. So when you run around and trick, go down to the bar and a trick pause T-shirt, man, sends the wrong message. But um, so uh, well, someone pointed out like back then that was six years ago, Giannis, and the literature at the time was unclear about how long. I even read in various like government things how that was unclear how long a human or how long a pig infected with trichinosis. It was like five to ten, right? Yeah. And I was saying that at the ten year mark, I wanted to find someone who was curious about this and I would happily submit samples. I'm assuming you you submit a sample. Do you 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 remember the epidemiologist that we had on that we talked with us about? I I tell this story all the time because I think it's so funny when you sort of proudly sprouted up in your seat and said, yeah, you know, Giannis and I have trichinosis. And he's like, really? When'd you get it? And we said, oh, 2012. And he goes, nah, it's gone by now. And I just remember your shoulders kind of slumped and you got real <laughs> pouty. Some- <laughs> yeah, he no longer had trichinosis. I don't. Well, so well, what's here- your gut? Do you think he still would test positive for it? Well, a guy was reminding about che- how we ought to get serious about checking that out. And Corinne was reading up on it. And you can actually... There's a you can call the infectious disease hotline at the CDC, correct? Mm-hmm. And you could submit a biopsy, and they'll run your test. So what I want to do is get however you do that, and we could take them right here and mail them in to see what happens. Mm. It's like a little hole punch. Oh, you got to take yourself? a chunk of meat. That they're saying you can send. Yeah, am like I am I right? I'd like that's, to see that. Oh, I, I would love to do it. The bear that gave us trichinosis when when we when we went through the CDC because it's a re- CDC reportable disease, and they took some of our bear meat. Uh, five. I remember calculating it out to five hundred thousand cysts per pound. Incredible, because it was wow. hundreds per gram. Yeah, it was like eight hundred per gram. 
if I remember In that correctly. muscle tissue. But, so a pound has, of that bear meat would have 500,000 cysts. Has trichinosis not got a little bit of a bad rap? Because I think most people, people think, think it's too bad. They think it's worse than it is. That's right. Like They think that if you get it, you're, I mean, it's just going to like toast your whole life. But I mean, it's it's like you said, you just kind of felt sick for a few days and that was it. And then it, you would have got over it and never even known you had it in your natural, I mean, Which you just would have got over it. W- what happens 90% of the time with trichinosis infections? Is it? Cause you don't know. Nobody okay. puts two and two together. If I didn't, if I hadn't had, if we hadn't been in communication because we worked together and four of us hadn't gotten it and we hadn't been together in a month and we all got weirdly sick on the same day. And my brother didn't drink beer with the state epidemiologist in Alaska. We wouldn't know that it happened. Right. Yeah, and my brother's wife that says, is a trick doctor. Ain't that bad after oh. all? <laughs> we might have she, tracked it down. She that had way. a little light bulb that went off in her head. Uh, well, I, I think that inhibits. That inhibits. That. No, I would love to send it in. I think that's an inhibitor for people psychologically for eating bear meat. It's oh, the I, thing. I, it's the question I get all the time. What about trick? What about trick? And I'm just like, man, it's a non-issue. Number one, you'll probably never get it. You'll eat bear meat your whole life and never get yeah. it if you just practice general safe handling meat practices. Trichinosis dies instantaneously in the low 140 degrees, instantaneously. And so it's like, it's not that big of a deal. No, it's not. When I, I bought one of those stupid $1,200 pills, but I was too late to take it. And the, uh, the, what do you call them at a drugstore? The pharmacist, she was saying, I'm not telling you what to do here, but I sell, you know, that, that pill is $7 for a dog. (laughs) (laughs) And then she says, but I don't know about the dosing and all that, but that's a $7 deworming pill. Mm. And, uh, and then she went on to tell me that when she was in the Peace Corps, they would, when they were working in Equatorial Africa, they would go into a village and they would just deworm everybody like without even asking questions on just knowing that everybody. They all had worms. Yeah. They all had trichinosis. Yeah. So she just, they just, that was like part of the course, check your teeth, give you deworming pill. Hmm. Yeah. Very widespread. Most people don't like you get it. You don't know you had it. So, so trick isn't like um, lying that goes in her ground and, com- and comes back worse. It goes mm-hmm. away. Much. It goes away, and then your meat stays infected for some period of time. Oh. You yeah. carry the cyst for some period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, unless something eats, you know, your flesh, and then the process begins again. We Life need to cycle. get a yeah. We need to get a little core thing that pulls out 0.2 to 0.5 grams of human skeletal muscle tissue. Maybe you should go to the bench the hospital made? to have that done. <laughs> well, hey, I'll tell you, I know how to like. I had I know a. You do your own surgery on your toe. No, but listen to this. I had a. I thought I had a wart on my hand one time, and this dermatologist like kept freezing it and freezing it and freezing it, and it wouldn't go away. And eventually, she's like, "I wonder if that's maybe not a wart. I still have a little mark from it." And she took one of those little cores and cored it all out of there and sent it to a lab, and it was a foreign substance was stuck in my finger, but zero pain. So that, that inspired you to maybe do it on your own next time? Oh, I, yeah, okay. I definitely want to do it. Okay. Uh, EMT uh, wrote in, this is an interesting thing he was writing in. You know when you like do a joke to your kids and you like eat a bug or a little minnow or something like that? This guy, he he's a paramedic and they get a call down to a lake. And it's because the guy is choking on a whole live fish. Gets down to a popular fishing area, and he arrives on the scene. There's a man standing next to the roadway, 
and you can visibly see a fish's tail sticking out of his mouth, coughing up a red, frothy blood. Tried to swallow a bluegill. His wife said he'd been drinking. Quite heavily. <laughs> Tried to impress his kids by swallowing a five-inch bluegill and its dorsal spines got stuck in his throat. Ooh. Wow. In the emergency room, he, he gets the coffin and finally hacks up the fish, lands on the cot. Five-inch bluegill. Think about that. Not very smart. Wow. At least his kids are super impressed, though. Yeah. Yeah. Now, here, this, is, this is helpful that Tracy's here, because this is part of the reason Tracy's here. It's, uh, the Book of Chetiket. So yep. Chester uh, has been offering to the audience to produce a book of outdoor etiquette. He wanted to do a book of fishing etiquette. Yeah. But I think... I think it could be just outdoor recreation, hunting would be even better. Just yeah. like you need to specialize, whole, man. The outdoor media, gamut. you need to specialize. The whole Th- that's, that's not even that's not even remotely true. <laughs> that's I not would even say remotely broader true. audience I, I, appeal. I mean, meat eater specializes in the greater outdoors. Listen, dude, so. when it comes to a book, like a book like that, you do not want to specialize. Uh, well, hear okay. me out. Uh, well, then, okay. Clay, <laughs> then you got to hear Clay out. <laughs> no, you go first. Tell me why you specialize. Oh, hey, I, I have made, I have made a living through niche, niche. However, we want to say it, either. through niche I'll media. But the Bear Grease ba- podcast, Bear, Bear Hunting Magazine, would be very Correct. specialized. So I just think for for Chester, I know Chester. I've been around Chester. I feel like he's going to be a specialist more than just this broad market guy. It's just my it's just my. I agree thing. with Clay. Interesting. I would say he, you're you have potential to maybe be a broad market guy. Here's Thank you, deal, Tracy. Man. I think <laughs> you're, you're not looking at it the right way. Here's here's why the book etiquette should be broad based because if you did Chester's book of fishing etiquette and marketed that book, okay, like if we self published this book. We market the book of Chetiket and it's fishing etiquette. And and then you're like, oh, then we'll do a whole bunch more books down the road where it's like mm. Chester on this, Chester on that, Chester on trail hiking, whatever the hell. I feel like if we just did like the book of outdoor Chetiket and it covered all facets of outdoor etiquette, you would sell a shitload more than if it was just Chester's book of fishing etiquette. Maybe not. I think that's inaccurate. Yeah, I think that's not true. everyone fish. I don't. Well, I, don't, I, don't I guess so. I need to get dialed in on how serious we're actually being. Here. Dead, dead is this serious. Like, is Chester's this like, idea is this a joke is in, or is this Chester's, for real? No, this is mm, dead some serious. might wish it was a joke. This but is, some this, might wish it was dead Chester, serious. Chester's idea is Tracy's in the 2022. The is in the 2022 can, pipeline. Can I? Am I wrong? Absolutely, can, it's going to be considered. It, I brought it to Tracy. Chester needs to advocate on his own idea. I would like to just have really had a good hey, chance. I, I can see the cover of the book. Okay, in in the town I'm from originally in Arkansas, there's a insurance agent that's real well known. He's an old guy, real just inviting looking guy, and there's huge billboards of him all over the town, holding his hands out like this, like he just holds his hands out and he's kind of got an awkward smile, like he's got insurance settlements. <laughs> and, he, and it says, "Welcome to the town," and then it tells his insurance agency. I see a cover with Chester with his hands out like, Chetiket, 
You see what I'm saying? Big fish in his me? hands or just empty just, no, just, listen, just like Listen, everybody. Everyone <laughs> thinks this is a joke, but I think there Dude, is a lot of people out there that can benefit from it. You go to every trailhead, every boat ramp, every hiking trail. People don't know what's going on, and they need something like a little Bible that tells them what's going on. And yeah, yeah. I think it could really be awesome. You know what I, I, you know I put on the first ideas. page? When you're walking your dog and you're going up the hill and your dog uh, goes to the bathroom and you bag it and you set it alongside the trail. I agree. I know you're thinking that you're going to grab it on the way down, but you won't. You won't. A lot of people don't. It'll live there in a bag on the side of the trail. That's the most infuriating thing. It is. Put that in that damn book. I will. Another another great example. That's the dog chapter. Let me just paint a picture for this area really quick. So imagine you're floating down one of the popular rivers in Montana. It's July 30th. It's 85 degrees, beautiful day, and it's a Saturday. We got tubers floating down the river. We have recreational rafters. We have fishing guides. And for people that don't know... You put in at a fishing boat ramp, you'll float downstream, and you'll take out at another boat ramp. That could be five miles, that could be ten miles, doesn't matter. So you're floating down the river, having a great time, and you pull up to the boat ramp, and there is a line of about six angry fishing guides waiting at the boat ramp. And a bunch of tubers with their coolers sitting out and beer cans and whatnot. And everyone's upset. What do you think the problem is, Steve? People are blocking the ramp. Yes. So. And people are pulling up to the ramp, not prepared to do what they need to do. They're getting, they're pulling up and then preparing. Yeah. So people don't even really know what that means. They're like, what? Well, There's a loading and offloading area at these fishing access points. So you should be way away. I think you should just call them, uh, they're not necessarily fishing access points, right? They're just boat ramps. They're just public access. Yes. Right? Boat ramps. He's trying to get like an editor gig on this book, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, you you load your boat up. You take your boat straps off. Well, no, it's important because it's not like anybody has more right to be there than anybody else. I agree. The They're, fishing guides don't have any more right to be there because it's not like a fishing boat ramp and the tubers are like encroaching. But if you look on Onyx, it says fishing access site. That's who pays for it. Fishermen pay for it. Ooh. Not that it's just for Listen, fishermen. But I agree. But the book can't be hierarchical. Yes. It can't be like if you're on a horse, you're more important than a person on foot or whatever. Yeah. Right? yeah. But let me finish really quick. I'll sum it up. So you, you load your boat up. And there's a line of people waiting. You pull in behind that line, get your life jackets ready, get your kids in the boat, get your cooler all set, get your plugs in, and then you wait in line and everyone takes their turn unloading and offloading. And, you know, people just don't know that. So no. little little bit, little bit. And as we book. discussed, lots of little things. When there's a horse coming down the trail, what is proper etiquette? Exactly. When you have a backpack on, when you have a dog, you all go, the etiquette stuff. You go down the trail, get off the trail, but go downhill instead of uphill so you don't spook the horses, wait for him to go by. Yeah, or like when you, when you walk into That's your good. duck hunting spot in the morning and someone's there, mm-hmm. what I, do you do? I, I like I like the idea. Shoot off over in their direction. <laughs> but, I like the idea. I think it would sell. 
But six years from now, ten years from now, you still have six angry guides at that boat landing. Of course. And and I just oh, you mean like you're like bringing you're bringing like existential stuff into this? Like, does it really matter? Yeah. 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 I don't know. Chester the the Divester's Book of Outdoor Chetiquette. That might be a little long. We'll figure it out. (laughs) Pat, it might it might drop it down to just four or five. Okay. What are you thinking, Tracy? You gonna green light this thing or not? Absolutely, Chester. Dude, she's, so you don't need to wait. You don't need to go through the normal process. You absolutely need to go through the normal process. <laughs> we make no exceptions. I'm com- I'm compiling some stuff. Great news. No, but, but I, think, I think you just did a lot for yourself, buddy. Are you gonna have guest writers? I'd like to write. I uh, I'd definitely like to be the author I, for the raccoon. Definitely, I don't want to give away all my ideas here because I've got some good ones, but definitely some some help. Wink. wink. You could do the horse or mule on a trail. Absolutely. Get out of the way. And, 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 don't, and don't forget me, because I'm sure I'll have some ideas. Perfect. Yeah. Ice fishing, etiquette, and You got just a regular employment gone. agreement? You on contract over here? I mean, I'm assuming just regular employment uh, agreement. You're really into talking about employment agreements on the show. Well, I don't days. want people having Steve, good ideas and running off and doing Steve. them on their own. <laughs> um, I'm not going to screw you over. I got uh, nowhere else to go. <laughs> I don't like the, I don't like the, the idea. Chester's home. Okay, Yanni's good. Or Yanni, Yanni's. It's time for Yanni's book report. On play the tune. Play play the Yanni's book report promo. Yanni's book report. He's gonna do a book report on an article, which is the best kind of book report, and it is a, a exploration of animals and PTSD. Yeah. But what, what this uh, book report's going to turn into is though is going to be a discussion about uh, how some journalists and reporters treat wildlife topics um, and how their like, a- anti-hunting bias shows through. But the, the basic gist of this article, which you can find on uh, Knowable Magazine... It's uh, Knowable Magazine. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're covering a... Here, go on. Um, everybody knows the classic snowshoe hare and, and uh, lynx cycle that we talk about, right? Lynx populations go up, snowshoe hare populations go down, and they sort of follow each other. And for a long time, everybody just thought that it was just based upon more predators, eat more rabbits, hares, then they go down, and because there's not enough food for the, for the, the lynx to eat, then their population crashes, less predators the hair population goes back up. Well, now they're doing some research and figuring out that it's not quite that simple, that there's this basically PTSD in these animals that is causing like a, just a more nuanced version of this cycle where because, and when there's a high predator population, the prey, not only are they getting eaten a bunch, but they're so stressed out and they're like living and hiding so much that the females are producing fewer and lesser young. So that in itself is sort of increasing you know, right, the, the lack of, um, of the prey population and causing it to go down. And so they're studying all this. Um, Let me know when there's a good minute for me to interject something. Anytime. Um, a researcher in Fairbanks did some work on snowshoe hare lynx cycles, mm-hmm. and they pointed to you know, plant toxicity. Mm-hmm. So willows being a primary food source, uh, plants respond to grazing 
by increasing their toxicity. Mm-hmm. So they had done a bunch of research about you have low hair numbers and plants aren't putting as much, willow doesn't put as much energy. You ever bite a willow limb that like, sure that taste? Mm-hmm. They don't put as much energy into producing that because it's not being heavily grazed and they put more energy into growth. Um, the low toxicity allows snowshoe hares to start consuming more willow. They consume more, they have bigger broods, they become numerous, willow starts cranking out shitloads of plant toxicity, it becomes a toxic food source. That's what Heath says. That's part of why I felt this was inexpertly reported. Well, I think it just points to that it's like, it's a, there's a, it's more nuanced than they thought it was, right? Which is the great thing about science. We're constantly, you know, learning more and more about it. But here's where it gets a little, like, tricky and what I didn't like so much about the article is that they started talking about some elephants. And they said that elephants were decreasing in numbers in certain parts of Africa and that it was basically due to uh, culling, um, habitat loss, and um, poaching, right? Then the next sentence, the writer said that a lot of the young elephants had watched their family members being slaughtered, right? Well, that word is, you can use it in a butchering sense. You slaughter animals at like a butcher house, or it's like to slay or a massacre or to uh, demolish completely, right? Those three things, sure, poaching is a pretty bad deal, but legal culling um, is not that, you know, it, it is what it is, right? And habitat loss is certainly not slaughtering. So that got my blood pressure up a little bit. Um, the other thing I didn't like so much is that they have a, are you looking at the article now, Steve? Yeah, I'm skimming through it and I'm looking at the, 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 the illustrations peer reviewed. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The lasting effect of trauma, Clay, you can see this too. It shows basically what's going on in the brain, right? As there's some trauma and then there's like a little flow chart that goes down and shows like how much, um, uh, oh yeah, the neurogenesis, what happens and then how much you forget, like kind of correlates to how bad the trauma was, right? And it sort of shows down that like the, the more there is trauma, the more animals remember this and then, you know, the less they're feeding and the less healthy they are. And in the end, there's less offspring, right? Well, the... (laughs) <laughs> the ver- their versions of trauma are a startling sudden sound like uh, thunder. And then the next two versions are a hunter in a kneeling position. He's not really quite doing it right. Yeah, he's not, he doesn't he, have his he, elbow, doesn't have on, his his elbow on his uh, knee. He's a, he's, but he's, he's just a super predator. Sh- and he, yeah, another thing, right? How, when did we become super predators? Is that a thing? Mm. Are we like no longer the equivalent of uh, lions and... Alligators and great white sharks. Now we're super predators. Him missing the deer is him missing the deer is seventy five percent more trauma than the lightning. Mm -hmm. But then when he hits the deer in the ass, which again you just like portraying hunters, just like it's terrible, right? That that is their version of like the fear plus physical trauma. Where I mean. They could have chosen to have a lion or a mountain lion jumping on this, uh, what looks to be a mule deer doe's back. Uh, but instead, they chose to use a super predator shooting and hitting her in the rear end. Um, that, that caused a whole bunch of trauma. 
a little bit of offspring. But just like we talked about the hairs and like your willows, what is cool is at the end they're showing that like fewer offspring produces also not only less prey, but more abundant vegetation, um, thus allowing the the population to eventually uh, rebound, uh, you know, significantly. Do they get into in here? Do humans who suffer PTSD have lower reproductive rates? Well, that's another thing they didn't get into. They st- this, this article is a tough one to do a book report on because they, <laughs> they, they start they start you know comparing this PTSD in animals to to human PTSD, and the sort of the question is like, is it just is PTSD just a human thing, or can it be for animals too? Because you can't really ask the deer, hey, are you uh, how you feeling? You know, since Steve shot you in the butt and you ran off. Um. And some people say, look, it's just, it, it's totally a human thing because, you know, we can talk about it and it's in your head and it's, it's not an animal's, but whatever. Pe- people are going to continue researching and, and go on. But yeah, there's a lot of things that they say are the outcome in animals from this PTSD, but they never relate that to the human. What you'd see likewise in a human. Yeah. Huh. I was kind of lying when I said I read it. I skimmed it. Did they, did they um, get Oh, go ahead, Pat. Did, did they get into dread? You know, like one of the arguments I've heard from World War II. Say that the, again. Dread. The word dread. D-R-E-A-D. Mm-hmm. They did not. In, in World War II, um, at, after, after the battles at Anzio, this guy did some, I think he's a doctor, did some really cool research into the, 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 wounded, the wounded men. And he found that a lot of things they thought were pain, why they were writhing around so much and screaming and hollering a lot, they thought was physical pain they were um, expressing. And they found in some cases, many cases, that just by administering a sleeping drug to make them sleep, they'd, they'd quiet down and, and they'd get better. You know, they'd, they'd start relaxing a little bit. And they started to realize a lot of the stuff that we think is pain is actually dread. These guys knew what was happening, that... that with their leg gone, with any number of body parts missing, part of their head missing, what they had to look forward to the rest of their life. And it was just, just driving them nuts. That and was agonizing. And that was agonizing. Yeah. yeah. And, you, and, you, and then, then this doctor was saying, of course, some people would argue today, you know, 80 years later, that, that maybe animals had that capacity to, to some degree, that to look forward with dread. And that's the thing I, I've often wondered myself, but I think I have a hard time believing a white-tailed deer with life expectancy in the wild of, you know, even in an in unhunted population of 10 years, that they could possibly have developed the kind of uh, emotions and forward-looking things that, we, that, that humans are capable of. So that's what I, when I hear about PTSD, I think, yeah, geez, I don't know. I can see it because, you know, because there are, there are things like in the, in the breeding world, with the deer, deer breeding world, the deer farms, they do find that by um, putting a fence up with black backing so they can't see into the outside world. So uh, a coyote coming along the edge of the fence line won't bother them on the inside. That they can generate bigger antlers when they reduce that stress from the outside world. Yeah. That that, that researcher from University of Wyoming, uh, Kevin Monteith, remember that episode we had Landscape of Fear? Mm Mm-hmm. But he kind of like, he debunked that a little bit. It was the idea that by bringing wolves into the Yellowstone ecosystem that you were creating a landscape of fear, kind of similar to what they're talking about, that you were like inducing PTSD on this whole population of elk mm-hmm. and, and behavioral changes. Right. And did he, was he into that? Or I can't remember what the hell he said about that. 
We even named the episode after it, The Landscape of Fear. Mm-hmm. Like what that, in, like inducing that amount of stress of elk just watching like elk after elk after elk after elk get killed. Like after wolves, I mean, after wolves came to Yellowstone, you had elk herds decline by 75%. It's an enormous amount of death to behold. Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't that though be a natural process of an animal adapting to predation that would actually make them stronger, more bi- more time. able to survive. So, so I mean, it just no. But they're saying that's what they're saying that PTSD is natural, and then it makes a hyper vigilant animal, and those that so it's it's a good thing. It, it allows yeah. the species to continue on. Yeah, because yeah. if you don't become hyper vigilant, then you end up being a host. I was yeah. going to say, growing up in Pennsylvania, where you they have like the highest hunter density per capita out of any other state. Um, deer getting shot at all the time. And they have super high fecundity. And I, I, most years, uh, does seem to have twins. I've seen does with up to five fawns and many times triplets. Like, I don't know. I would think those deer were, would have a high, high amount of stress yeah. with the amount of people out there shooting at them and stuff, but they're still... Pumping out fawns. Uh, Heffelfinger quoted Stephen Gould. Um, what was it? Remember, he's like, there's there's a lot of stories that are just so stories where you think there's like a thing going on, but there's actually not. And it's just a, it's a just so story. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide, a veteran-founded business. It's dedicated to producing American-made cleaning chemicals and also dedicated to creating American jobs. And that commitment is embodied in every product that's bottled, labeled, and shipped from their Arvada, Colorado facility. Safe for all firearm types and surfaces. Embrace the power of American ingenuity and protect your firearms with the best. Visit RiptideArmory.com. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. I, for one, use it on all of my outboard engines up in Alaska every year. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. If you've learned anything after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, it's this. There's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, no way, can't be true. But there isn't a catch. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service 
online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash eater. That's mintmobile.com slash eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash eater. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. All right, Clay, hit, hit us on the old foot. This is my favorite news yeah. article to come out in six months. Have you done, have you looked at this? Oh, much? yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. He skimmed it. No, so, no, so no. The white, I read this in, big time. In the white There's sands. certain things that will happen, and like a lot of people all text it to me, and many I people text me this too, shit. It's fascinating, man. Well, so in the White Sands National Park in New Mexico, they found some new footprints so White Sands has the largest number of fossilized human footprints in North America prior to this. So it's known that there are places where you can go see all these human footprints, and they're on this ancient lake, Otero, O-T-E-R-O. And basically in 2019, they decided to do some excavation over the top of, for whatever reason, they chose a site and they, they excavated down deeper than they ever had, and they found this series of human footprints that are just beautiful human footprints, and they believe them to be uh, teenagers and adolescent kids. And so to, to give a broad overview of the story, and then I'd like to dive in and, and kind of tell the significance of this find. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and we covered... Uh... We covered another White Sands foot. They call them ghost prints, right? I hadn't heard that. We covered another set of footprints that came out of the White Sands where a woman, they believe it was a woman based right. on the configuration of the footprint, was carrying a child. Her foot, When she had the child on her hip, her I think her like right foot would go in deeper. Now and then she'd set the child down. The child would walk yeah. away. She'd pick it back up. She came back later down the same path without the child. And in the time between when she went and came back, a giant ground sloth had crossed her trail. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Well, it's wild, man. So so these footprints predate yeah, her prints. by a lot. Yeah. And so basically, they it was two years ago that they discovered these prints. Just in, the la- in September, they released their studies of what they believed. And so the, the way that they date these is they... They find these layers, and inside these layers of sediment, and, and some of it's fossilized rock, but apparently there's, there's some where well, they were able to take grass seeds from that same layer and carbon date those grass seeds, and basically that's how they understand the age of these footprints. And so these footprints are believed to be 21 to 23,000 years old, which now has become the oldest known evidence of humans in North America to date. And there's a, there's a bunch. And this what I have, Is do, it like full academic consensus? Because you remember when they found that site in Chile? And they, Monte it was Verde. Monte Verde. And they're like, this is the oldest known yeah. site of human habitation in the New World. Okay. And then they, they, everybody went down. Like David Meltzer went down there. All the anthropologists went down there. Highly skeptical. 
They went down, they did a site survey, and they came away and said yes. Okay. Like we, there, it, it there just became is, like, it became as established of a fact as can happen. Man, that's what I'm learning with some of the study I'm doing right now for some Bear Grease stuff is how this archaeological, these archaeological finds take sometimes decades before it becomes consensus. I actually emailed David Meltzer about, about, footprints? about footprints. Oh. And he, he said, if they are what they say they are, this is a very, very significant find. But there still is a question of if. But there's also in all the it, it articles. throws out of whack the idea that humans had to come down during these specific interglacial periods. Right. Yeah. And so th- there's still some stuff to come. But they, it's pretty legit because there's other really legit archaeological people that are dead, you know, are saying they're putting their stamp on it, saying this is for real. Um. So two years two years ago they discovered these. Um, they they started knowing they found footprints in white sands like eighty years ago. Uh, there's there's a whole series of these footprints. There's footprints of a of a human stalk. What they presumed was stalking a ground sloth. Hmm. Like there's ground sloth footprints with human footprints inside of them, or it was at least following the path of a ground sloth. Um, so here, here's, this is what helped me understand it. And Steve, tell me if you follow this line. But prior to 1927, they thought that humans arrived in North America like two to 3,000 years ago. This was yeah. prior to, so that was like in the 1920s, less than 100 years ago, they thought Native Americans, indigenous people had only been here for like 3,000 years. And there was there is talk that that was a mentality that was propagated to kind of justify manifest destiny, mm. you know, oh, just kind of like not that we, bad. Had, I mean, they've been here that they long. They haven't been here that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then in 1927 is when the Folsom site in New Mexico became stamped by the archaeological world as legit. And that Folsom site in New Mexico. I mean, we could talk about that for forever. But well, basically, they had a s- stone spear point stuck inside of an. Ice Age species. Right. And you couldn't and, argue with it. And so they dated that back to 10,000 years. So all of us in 1927, it was like, holy cow, humans were here when bi- it was a bison antiquus skull mm-hmm. or a bison antiquus kill site. They found these stone points. They now call them Folsom points. But that rewrote history. They, we've been here 10,000 years. But what's interesting is that wasn't Steve, fair chase either, man. They corralled them into a box canyon and nailed killed them. them all in the head of the canyon. Yeah. Yeah. So they they uh, what's wild though is that there were multiple other sites that had bison antiquous bones with human artifacts inside of it that were not legitimate because they didn't they mishandled them. Mm. There were two other sites during that time period. So that that shows you the archaeological world. Like they found probably legitimate sites in Texas, Oklahoma, and Nebraska during the same same time period. And we're not legitimized by because some dude picks up the point and throws it in his yeah, pocket. He, he take you know he takes and a picture of it. Later, on his like, phone. no, that's where I found it. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Okay, and then that, in the that's 19th, why we can take take some advice from Taylor Keene, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Just leave it land. So 1927, we believe we've been here 10,000 years. In the 1930s is when they found the Clovis site, which is in Clovis, New Mexico. It was a similar situation. They found this. Whatever they Blackwater found. Blackwater Draw. You been to that type site? No, I, I hadn't been there. there. Yeah. I hadn't been there. And Clovis dated human arrival in the Americas back to around 13,000 years. That's what I read. Is that what you would have said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard yeah, it, was some, a mam- it was a mammoth kill site. 
So 11 to 13,000 years, okay? Stepping it back, Monte Verde in Chile, which was is wild because if if well, that site basically dated human arrival into this part of the new world, quote unquote, to 14.5,000 years ago. So that's Monte Verde. You know, they make a sandwich down there. It's like a roast beef sandwich with French cut green beans on it. Holy shit, is that good, man? They call it in Chile or they call it the Monte Verde? No, I had it down there. Um, I, want to, I was thinking yesterday about making some of those sandwiches. Monte up. Verde, they, um, they, ain't, they ate ancient potatoes and seafood. They found at it that in site, there. and they had a they had they had rawhide made out of mastodon leather tied around a tent stake, didn't they? Wow, yeah, yeah I think I was yeah. okay. So I'm walking us back. So now we're back to fourteen point five thousand years. So in 2017, they came out with this with the with a a a they released stuff on Cooper's Ferry on mm. the Salmon River in Idaho, which dated human arrival in the Americas back to sixteen thousand years ago, which that would have been a water. And that, you know, you could have a whole podcast on this, Steve, but we're going back to the White Sands thing. Yeah. But the Cooper, the, the Cooper's Ferry site in, on the Salmon River in Idaho indicated a water travel arrival because they basically would have come from, you know, Kamchatka and Japan and all over there, come around the coast and then basically took Pass a my left. Cabin. Yeah. Past Steve's cabin. Took a left Pass on the Columbian cabin. River, up the <laughs> Columbian River, up the Snake River. So that's why look at that shitty A-frame. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> moldy. Um, and and so so this these these footprints, if they're they say they're twenty one to twenty three thousand years old, basically date back human arrival an, an additional five thousand years. And here's the crazy thing about like here's the crazy thing about it is in uh it's not the oldest place. Like, what are the chances they found the footprints of the oldest? The, well, that's like the first person, right? It's just all the junk you, there's all the junk you'll never find. Yeah, I was at. I that's was just at, the oldest they've found. Was at the Folsom site, and I don't want to go into a tangent. Just this week in New Mexico, the Folsom dig site is probably fifty feet by fifty feet. I'm sitting there with a guy, and I said, "Why? How do we not know that there's another bison kill and a whole village like right there?" Mm. And they go, "We don't know." I when mean, I, when I was in that, it's was it Wild Horse Arroyo? Yes. Yeah, I was standing there, and the, the arroyo moved a little bit, and I'm standing there with the archaeologist, and there's a bone sticking out of that bank. I wanted to pull that bone so bad, man. <laughs> that dude, like, that dude was no way. He Gotta took a waypoint. He took a GPS cord on it and took photographs. And I was like, let's just yank it out of there, man. <laughs> that dude was not going to pull that bone out of that wow. bank. Wow. Oh, I would have ripped that thing out of there if you'd looked the other direction. It was just <laughs> killing me that you couldn't, you couldn't, yeah. Steve, stop me if I'm going too long here. But no, no, no. They're, this is all great, They're man. now, so, so that dates us back to 21,000 years or t- 23,000 years. But, a way now that they're and this is all news to me these are things I'm learning and you probably know more about well, this well I didn't know about this till when you knew about it well but a, a way now that they're trying to understand how long we've been here is based on genetics of indigenous people mm-hmm. so I've got a quote here genetics now calculate based on mutation rates in human DNA that the ancestors of the Native Americans parted from their kin in east in the in their East Asian homeland sometime between 25,000 and 15,000 years ago. Um, 
So basically, so they're able to take the the the, the DNA data from indigenous people in North America today and say, well, they left their cousins back in mm-hmm. Asia maybe 25,000 years ago and they had to go somewhere and they came this way. So now they're more than just like finding stone points in the ground. Yeah. They're able to understand. And yeah, they don't know where, you know, they don't know the journey. They don't know what happened, but just like they parted genetic tracks maybe as far as 25,000 years ago. And when you start digging through all this stuff, what's so confusing is that there is a ton of places that are not, are not, stamped by archaeology is legit. You know, there's a place in California that they claimed for a while was 130,000 years old evidence. And, you know, they're pretty much like, no. Um, But there's these ancient sites down in South America. Like when we're trying to decide where people came from to get to the new world, you know, I mean, uh, you heard Taylor Keene on Bear Grease podcast saying that the, the Cherokee the 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 Cherokee cosmology, I think they call it, just their stories of how their people got here as they came from the south, you know, and um, and and so just it's it's a convoluted world, yeah. and it's why I lo- absolutely love it because in a day where we think we know so much, we really know so little. We just humans get so hyped up about all the stuff they know, but really, <laughs> man, oh, we yeah, know buddy. nothing. We know nothing. <laughs> On that Bear Grease episode, one of the more interesting things that you were talking about with the Cumberland Gap is we think of, like, coming from a Euro-American perspective, you think of that you went west. East to west. Through the Cumberland Gap, and that you went west on the Oregon Trail. But if you look how the Western Hemisphere was populated, the first people to do the Oregon Trail were probably headed the other way. Yeah. Yeah. They're headed east. Headed they east. headed east through the Cumberland Gap. First, first humans through that gap, most likely going came, the other direction. Came from east to west. Uh, one of the biggest things about these tracks that fast takes me is they're 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 barefoot. And maybe if you're not barefoot, it doesn't hold up well. But I spent some time in Arctic Alaska with some anthropologists, and they were talking about that one way to time hum- they they felt that to time human migrations through Siberia and into the Western Hemisphere. Um, would be that they felt that it had to be it had to correlate to the invention of the eyed needle hmm. that you had to have tailored clothing because these people were spending generations in an arctic landscape um but then you find like barefooted individuals in these tracks and it's like did they wear did they have boots in the winter do you know uh, I mean do they prefer to be barefoot did they did they like insulate their feet yeah that Otzi dude they found in the Italian Alps, he had he had some sweet boots made out of three kinds of hides. Like well, uppers, lowers, to. and soles are made from three different kinds I of animals. I bet they wore boots when they had to. And he had them hey, packed full of I, grass. Can I tell the story about your daughter and her dream? You bet. Okay. So my daughter, she's now in her late teens. She's 18. When she was young, she did not wear shoes, Tracy. I'm looking at Tracy because Tracy's a mother now. Yes. Uh-huh. She she did she just we could hardly make her wear shoes, you know. And when you just don't she's wear the total shoes, hillbilly, Arkansas hillbilly. Well, oh, I guess. Man. I guess. <laughs> I guess. She's not at all. <laughs> she and when you don't wear shoes, your toes spread out. Shoes yeah. make your feet narrow. And so the track of a human that wears shoes all the time is your toes are like this, yeah. like tight together. The, those white sands tracks 
you can see air between their toes. Oh, Giannis. So, okay, I was at Giannis's house eating dinner with his family and his two little girls. I was telling them about my daughter. And because they kind of reminded me of my girls just running around. And, and I said, my daughter, she, when she was little, she wouldn't wear shoes. And her feet look like uh, an indigenous person. If River Nuka made a foot track on the ground, you'd be able to see gaps in her toes. And uh, the girls just kind of listened to me and they didn't say a thing. Like they, they didn't seem that impressed with my story of River's toes. The next day, Giannis uh, email, or messages me and he says, Clay, my daughter Woke up this. Well, you tell her. You tell him what she said. No, I think you're going to remember better. Well, I'm, 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 I'm forgetting the details. He said his daughter came in and said, "Daddy, I had a dream, and I and and I was barefoot, and you could see the ground between my toes." <laughs> <laughs> the story impacted her so much that she's out there dreaming about having feet like this. So Giannis messages me the picture, and he says, "Look at the gaps between those toes." That's how I found out about this was through Giannis. Well, that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, Mabel's quite the runner. So she was probably like thinking subconsciously as she slept if maybe, you know, a wider footprint would make would her help faster. Yeah. A while ago, we were talking about a, yeah, a, a doctor had written into us about removing a guy's leg or bones out of his leg and the guy wanting the bones to make stuff out of. And I think he thought that he was fixing to make a truck, like the shifter knob on his truck. Well, that guy's kid, a person wrote in thinking, I'm pretty sure that my old man is the person you're talking about. And what he ended up doing is making a little robot thing <laughs> it's a out of his leg bones. Steve. What's that? It's a paperweight. It's a, yeah, it's like a robot paperweight <laughs> out of his own leg bones. So it solves that mystery. Hmm. Uh, all right, Pat, tell, like, we're. we're I want to get into all the, 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 like the death articles you've been writing. Okay. Um, do you feel that, do you, do you feel that, have, have you, were you interested in that when you're young or do you feel like it's like being in the autumn of your life or what is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> funny, funny you should mention that. So <laughs> the thing I love about coming on your podcast, I never know what the hell you're going to ask me. Um, <laughs> no, um. First of all, I wanted to say that before I even touch on that, that I'm not a I'm not a person who likes horror movies. Uh-huh. I don't I, I can't watch scary movies. They, they just really do not agree with me. So that is not part of my makeup. You know, people ask me that a, quite a bit. But um, to get to your question, um, I I think about that and I, I trace it back to it, it does go back to. The fact I'm 65 years old now, and I mm. know I'm I know now I'm in the final season, you know. Oh, and, and Pat, say it's not so, man. And, and um, and what what the connection I make where I realize this is something that's fascinating me all my life is that my um I've written about this. Meteors published at least one of my articles about it. That I grew up in the home I grew up in. My grandmother, my dad's mother, lived with us, and so. When I was a kid, when I became of an age where I could start interacting with her and, and having memories of her, I was about now where she was then. And what always struck me about her is she was always aware of the fact she was on her final, final, um, in the final season. And, but she was not morbid. She was not fatalistic. She was just matter of fact about it. And one of the things, one of my memories of that time was, she, 
we would, on Sundays after Mass, often, not often, but every now and then, she'd take us to her, her future gravesite just to show us this is where she'd be. Where she'd be, and um. and and um, one one of the things as a little kid I used to ponder was she'd say the view from up here is so spectacular. It's west of Madison, looks toward Madison, Wisconsin. You see the state capitol off in the distance, and of course my little mind would think, but Granny, you're in the ground. You know how you can't see. You know you'll you, you'll be able to appreciate this scene. <laughs> That's a good but, point, man. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember having that little thought. You'd put like a little periscope. <laughs> But may, the may, maybe the view wasn't for her; it was for the visitors. Well, that's, that's true, and and and, she, and that's another thing. She was that kind of person who would um, hmm. think of things, things like that besides herself. But she, um, but she had that that awareness, and I I always liked the idea that you know with her you never knew. Yeah, it's the final season, but are you going to make it to um, Columbus Day, Halloween, Thanksgiving, or New Year's Eve? She didn't know. She didn't care. She just you know went on with her life. It was just kind of a cool thing as a little kid to have that perspective that I've never forgotten. And the, the thing, one of the little tangible things that, that stick with me is she'd be out in this garden. She's a gardener till way late in life till she got physically where she could not move around in her gardens. And she would still, every time she got a new tool, always painted the handle red. So when, it, when, it, when she'd lay it down, she could always find it. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to look around. So to this day, I still have some of her tools out in my garage, those red handles. And I think, here's a woman, you know, 85 years old at some point, these little claw rake things that she used in these in these holes, the red handle. I thought, oh, I still have that. It's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Then, um, but the, the another thing from my youth that I remember was um, I, I, I was always, well, I was seven years old when Kennedy was killed, John Kennedy or President Kennedy. And How old? Seven. I was yeah. in second grade when, when the teacher came in and told us. I was down in art class, so I have a real vivid memory of um, John, Ken, John Kennedy's death. And one of the things that struck me going home was, you know, like they let us out of school, so it's kind of like, hey, cool, we get to go home. And then you get home, and everyone's crying. My dad's crying. My, my mom's crying. And I, and I um, really hit me that, God, I've never seen my dad cry before. This is fascinating shit. And, but I still couldn't quite understand what was, what the big deal was. I mean, I knew it was a death, but I still didn't really comprehend it. And then as I got older, I started reading these, um, I, I used to love reading biographies. And I still, I still do. And I'd read these biographies when I was like in middle school. They're still a little more adult now. Um, and I was reading about John Kennedy. And one of the things he was haunted by was people dying in their prime, you know, and even before their prime. He himself was he haunted himself, by that. Yeah. that he was really something that really um, lived in him, that he um, really worried about it and thought about it a lot. And, and I think it's probably because he was in World War II. He fought in the PT boats out in the Pacific and had life and death experiences. People died in his boat when the Japanese destroyer cut it in, the, cut it in half, which when I was a kid, I think it's great war stories that you knew. Every kid my age knew the, the John Kennedy and PT-109 story. So anyway... The thing that always struck struck me with me all these years later is that when he was in the White House, um, he became aware of this this poet named Alan Seeger. He was a Harvard graduate, like in 1910, and Alan Seeger um, wrote this poem. I should I should back up a little bit. Alan Seeger, when he came out of college, um, he was you know, like I said 1910, yeah, and he. And he um, when World War I started, he 
thought it was immoral that our country, the U.S., wasn't over helping France. And he was so taken by that and thought it was so immoral that our country wasn't helping France that he joined the French Foreign Legion. And he wanted to join the, the regular French army, but he, but he couldn't because he wasn't, the, wasn't from France. So he joined the French Foreign Legion. Well, he, when he was at war then, in, like in 1914, 15, and 16, he started writing war poems. And Kennedy so much loved this one poem called, I Have a Rendezvous with Death. Hmm. And he loved it so much that he made his, he, he didn't make, he asked his wife, Jacqueline, if she would memorize the entire poem. And it's about as long as, um, it, well, it's, I can show you real quick, just so you have an idea. It's like that long. Mm-hmm. Um, he had her memorize it. And then every now and then, he'd have that, get that mood, mood come over him. And he'd ask his wife to recite it for him. And she memorized it and she recited it for him. And, and just a real haunting poem that, you know, stuck with this guy. And the final four lines go something like, um, of a rendezvous with death at midnight in some flaming town, when spring trips north again next year, to I, my pledge word am true, I will not fail that rendezvous. So this guy knew he had a real good feeling he was going to die in that war. And sure enough, when he was 28 years old, 1916, gets killed in this um, battle over in France. Really? Yeah. And... And then another fascinating thing about Alan Seeger, if you know your music, 1950s, Peter Seeger, Pete Seeger, wrote these famous songs that to this day we still sing, like, If I Had a Hammer, um, oh, yeah, this, yeah, this yeah, Land yeah. is Your Land, This Land is My Land. That was, Peter Seeger was his nephew, Alan Seeger's nephew. And this He's no the, Bob Seeger, but I know what you're talking about. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so, that, so those, those two stories, I think, always... Um, resonated with me. And, and I always thought later in life when I became a newspaper reporter in Oshkosh, Wisconsin back in the 1980s, I always, I wanted to be an outdoor writer and that's where I, what I became. But looking back at times, I always thought, you know, I, I think I probably could have been a pretty good crime, uh, crime and police reporter. Cause I, I, I was looking back on, and I was an old guy, I think I could picture myself being that reporter who the cops got to know and trust and say, hey, come over here. This is, you got you to work on this one because hey, I, I find it fascinating. Is it true that, I think it is, uh, JFK's uh, girlfriend died in her prime? Which Marilyn one? Monroe. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Um, tell everybody about how you almost uh, weren't a person. Oh yeah, yeah. That's another great, another great story about my grandmother. Another brush with death. Yeah, yeah. Before I was even a, a twinkle, yeah. Um, I'm going to turn, turn my hearing aid up on this one. Listen, listen to this. It's harrowing. How oh, yeah. close we came into having no Pat Durkin. <laughs> Nip and tuck. Oh, uh, let me, before you tell this one, I okay. want to remind you of, uh, we had a thing, uh, you used to write obituaries. Yeah. yeah. And I remember you, you wrote a collection. Pat wrote a piece about Hunter's obituaries. Like he collected, you wrote a piece about this, right? How the way Hunter's are remembered. And you found an obituary of a Hunter that said like the guy died at hunting camp, but and then it ends with, but otherwise it was a successful trip. <laughs> I think that was one of the first pieces we like shared of Pat. Oh, so we passed it around that obituary piece. It was great. Thank you. <laughs> so, so those kind of stories do do stick with you. Yeah, um, yeah. The story about how I didn't, how I'm almost not here today. Um, in 1929, this had been like January 1929. So this is. Um, Keep in mind, this is the, this is right before the depression. Um, 
my grandmother, the one I just talked about, um, she was pregnant with my with what came to be my father, and and 1929 was also the year of prohibition, and my my dad's father wasn't too keen on the idea of having a fourth kid. You know, they were uh, at the time a one income family like everybody was back in 1929, and he just he was a he was a firefighter in, in Madison, Wisconsin. My grandfather, and so he had this idea that they really couldn't have a fourth kid. And this is a day before. This is an era before abortion clinics and all, all the modern medicine and stuff. So uh, he took her downtown Madison. I think it was on East Washington Avenue or maybe West Washington Avenue. It's one of these roads that heads up to the Capitol in Madison, Wisconsin. And one of the parts I like about the story is that the outside of the of the building, it said um, something like um, newsstand, some guy's newsstand. And but then when you get inside, and that was just kind of a front. Inside was a speakeasy, you know, where they served drinks. And this is uh, during the, the year of prohibition, so there's no no drinking allowed. So my my grandfather took my grandmother in there, and they had a few drinks. And then while he was trying to get her, basically get her, not maybe not you know, shit faced drunk, but drunk. And then once he kind of had her in the right mood, he he explained to her his thinking that they really shouldn't have this fourth kid, and maybe it's time, you know. By just by a matter of coincidence here, you know, I'm making this this part up, but um, he suggested to her that they take a little walk to the back end of this building. In the back corner of that building is basically a, a backdoor um, abortion clinic, and he wants her to abort what was my father. And of course, they had no idea it was my father, but um, they wanted to abort the. You kid. still can take it personally, though. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> and you're damn right, I do. <laughs> and and um, my grandmother, um. She's a good German Catholic. You know, that was not just not something that she would ever agree to. And she basically, you know, I don't know if she, I doubt she would have told him to F off, but she would, have, she would have probably said something like that and just left and refused. And one of the parts of the story I've always— How did they get passed down to you, though? Oh, I can tell you that. Um, but let me finish my story. I can, I can tell you yeah. the story. Um, um, so then—so that was January— and then my dad was born in July. My dad actually was born on July 4th. You know, he always liked the fact he was born on the 4th of July. Um, Be a good name for a movie. <laughs> yeah. Sometime, sometime, I think it was like in August. So this is me, like a month old or so. Um, Granny's house burned down. And she always told the story about how I always thought if, that, if I had aborted your father, I would have always thought it was God punishing me, bringing my house down. No. Oh. Yeah. And I, and I, didn't have the, didn't have enough sense at the time to ever ask her while she's alive. Well, what did you tell yourself then? You know, what what, what was God punishing you for then to burn your house down? You know, wasn't, <laughs> wasn't that what was it? Wasn't that? You know, because to her kind of thinking, that was always kind of the there was always retribution with with her and my and my other my maternal grandmother was the same way. I remember bonking my head on a door one time. When I was like four or five years old. Me really smashed my head into the, a door that was standing open. And as I'm standing there bawling my head off and her comforting me about against her breast, she says, that's God punishing you. He must have done something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> and that's the way my other grandmother was too. You know, you got, God's always punishing you for something. But the story, how it got passed down, my dad, my dad every now and then make this joke in front of all of us that, um, yeah, if your grandmother listened to my dad, you guys wouldn't be here. And then that, he never, my dad was never a storyteller though. And so I didn't really hear the whole story until later when, um, 
a cousin of mine, Peggy, who you guys have met on her farm. Oh yeah, we hunted um, her place. Yeah. She, she's kind of the family historian who, um, as Granny was getting older, she'd sit down with her and have her, um, tell a lot of the stories and kind of fill in all the backgrounds really? from these stories. Yeah. It, one of my favorites. That seems like such a thing that would be swept under the rug, so under yeah, the family yeah. rug, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it, but it wasn't. It was, it was pretty common knowledge. I didn't know a lot of details about it. I didn't know the, about this, this three-tier building where it went from a newsstand to, to drinking to a backdoor abortion clinic. Man, I wonder what the fourth section was. Yeah, well, just the street. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting um, thing, but... Um, Oh. I, don't, I don't know. I, 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 I always thought that, I, you know, and it wasn't either that um, abortion wasn't a topic that came up really a lot in, in our family discussions. I mean, I remember my mother, my, um, my mother and my grandmother, paternal grandmother discussing it, but never in heated terms, never real emotion. It's kind of matter of fact that, you know, this is one of these things that would happen quite often in the old days. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Walk everybody through, um, uh, with Dirk and on death, we're going to review a bunch of your articles. Okay. So walk everybody through the uh, the one called The Savage Murder of Warden Neil. How's he pronounce his last name? Neil Lefave. Lefave? Yeah. The Savage Murder of Warden Neil Lefave. This is, if I was going to tell, um, give advice to aspiring young journalists, um, writers, any kind of writer really, the importance of getting out of your damn office and going out and doing things and meeting people face to face and... And that's where your stories a lot of times come from is face-to-face discussions and phone calls and stuff. Um, I was duck hunting two years ago, and I'd kind of forgotten about the Neil Lefebvre case because it happened in 1971 when I was maybe, I'd have been 15 years old, and I kind of had a vague recollection of it. Um, but, it but it happened up by Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I'm from Madison, Wisconsin, which is about 140 miles to the southwest. So I was just kind of vaguely aware of it and kind of, I'd forgotten about it into my adult life. But then when I was duck hunting a couple of years ago, I, I, we were at this um, boat landing. After we got done hunting, I was reading one of these uh, placards there that you often see in parks because it's another piece of advice from the old guy. When you stop and read those historical markers, they're, they're fascinating, the things that we just blow past all the time. So I was reading this and it kind of, kind of came back to me that kind of, I kind of remember that, but I didn't know the, the gruesome, terrible details of it. But um. The story I, I did this two-part series on about the, the um, about Neil Lafave's murder, and Neil Lafave in that era, and it's kind of it's all fought, faded away now. But in that era, it wasn't uncommon for um, 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 biologists, wildlife biologists from the Wisconsin DNR, to also carry warden credentials. They get a little extra training so they could be law enforcement people. And Neil, Neil LaFay was one of these guys who was, you know, doing the double duty as a wildlife biologist and a, and a conservation warden. And apparently he'd had, he'd had run-ins with this, this, this guy a number of times over the years. And um, one night, um, one afternoon, they think he was out posting the end of this wildlife area and heard shooting back in the wildlife area, a twenty-two, and thought that was, he probably thought that was unusual to be hearing twenty-two rounds going off back in a marshy area, which is duck hunting. And hunters would know that people don't shoot, twi- shoot 22s at ducks. It's a shotgun activity. So he went to investigate and they think, they think this Neil, Lef- this Neil Lefebvre was murdered by a guy named Brian Husong, who was, I think, 28 years old at the time. Uh, and he lived- How old are you, Seth? 30. Oh. Just barely. I was like, you just look at Seth, try to picture that. <laughs> yeah. 
The guy looks nothing like me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he actually did not look like you. <laughs> um, but uh, apparently, they think this um, Hussang was back there intentionally trying to lure um, Lefebvre in there. Cause he really? Had, he had such a grudge against him because he had, he had cited him for shooting a pheasant off season the year before, and they had other confrontations, and they think he's just a sick son of a bitch and was laying for the guy. And they, um, when they, ahead of my story, but when, when, um, when Lefebvre went in there to investigate then, they, they think Hassan ambushed him. He was 22 and he shot him repeatedly in the face. Just shot him as a brutal close range, killed the guy. And he, hmm. he didn't, didn't just shoot him once in the face. He basically unloaded, you know, his, his 22 semi-automatic rifle into the guy's face. And so you'd assume he probably shot him while he fell backward, you know, too. And then he goes back out of the marsh and his grandmother lived on the side of the marsh. And went, in, went back there, retrieved a 30 out six, says 30 out six, came back into the marsh with a 30 out six and a shovel, proceeded to, this is gruesome stuff. Um, he proceeded to blast away at Lefebvre's neck area until the neck area is pretty much just um, meat and then sliced off the head. Carried the head about 60, I think it was like only like 60 feet, 70 feet north of there. Buried the head face up, then buried it. And then buried the body back where he'd fallen, or he dragged him off a little ways, I think, to the south, and then buried him. And one of the sad, poignant parts of that story is that, um, meanwhile, after this had taken place that evening, this was Neil Lefebvre, the warden's 32nd birthday. So uh, back home at the Probably ranch. Just... 29. Oh. <laughs> so, oh, he's, yeah, he's more like the killer. Oh, yeah. yeah Seth's right. the killer. Like the the, yeah, Chester's the killer. Seth's the victim. Yeah. 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 Cleanly shaven. That's the guy. Kind of, kind of, you know, you don't look like him either, though. <laughs> and um, so back at, back at Neil LaFay's home, his wife and his two, I think he had two daughters, I think they're like four years old and two years old. Oh, yeah. We're, um, we're setting the house up for a surprise party for him. So they had guests over and everything else waiting for him to come home. Guy never comes home, of course. And when, when they all finally just figure, well, you know, he's not coming back, so he might as well, you know, break up the party. So um, this Peggy Lefebvre thought, boy, he's missing. This isn't like him. I bet she had a run-in with this Brian Hussong because she knew about the guy and, and the confrontations they'd had. So she went back to the, the wildlife area, found his truck, started looking for him, and finally about 10 o'clock gave up, summoned um, sheriff's department, and they started looking for him that night. They got people together, law enforcement people, and started looking for him. Didn't find him. Some of the guys worked, searched all night to find him. Never did find him that night. Next day, they, they reconvened at dawn. Started, um, they, they basically set up a skirmish line People are a few feet apart and start combing the, the wildlife area, breaking it down, gritting it out, just like you would do when you're, you know, looking for a lost animal when you're hunting. And a, a bull hunter showed up just to shoot his bull and practice his bull and saw what was going on and said, you know, well, he'd, he'd help. So he joined in, started helping. Well, he, he happened to be the guy that came across a freshly beat up area. And he likened it to finding a, a fresh scrape that a bucket made. It was kind of circular kind of fresh dirt, been, things have been moved around and thought, well, that's weird. And he started scooping with his hands and it's, it's this, you know, marshy soil, you know, sandy, sand, sand-based um, muskeg type stuff. And right away found, ran into the belt buckle of Neil Lafay's belt buckle. Realized, oh, heck, this, here it is, here he is. 
and they um, so they all gathered and they then they got us then they got the serious people in there to start uncovering the body. Well, then as they worked their way up, they realized the head's not there. So then they stopped, and then they summoned the crime lab from Madison to come up to forensics people. And then they didn't arrive till um, like in the dark, resumed all the work, and. Right away, the, the law enforcement people um, really went to work and interviewed every hunter that had ever, ever been in that area that they could find and started giving out lie de- taking, sending, um, assigning people to do lie detector tests. And of course, the only hunter they came across that refused to take the test was this um, Brian Husson. You know, he, he loitered up right away and was not cooperating at all, and they were pretty sure he did it. And what I, the way I led my article, that I did for Meat Eater about this was uh, I thought it was fascinating that the the lead prosecutor, um, I can't pronounce his name, Zide Miller, Don Zide Miller, I think his name is. Um, he was a hunter himself, and he realized right away. He says he says to me, and, I, and he's still he's still around. He's actually a circuit judge in in, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. He's in, the, in his late seventies now, probably close to eighty years old now. Um, but he remembered it, thinking that. You know, the, the key to this crime, solving this crime and making a conviction here is finding that 30 at 6. He said that 22, it's a half-ass 22, and that's probably a long gun. He probably threw it in Green Bay for all we know. We'll never find that gun, but no one's going to throw away a 30 at 6 deer rifle. And so he, um, they went to work, and they, this is 1971, remember. And this wasn't an era before. This is ended up being the first time Wisconsin got... Uh, um, a wiretap. Up until that time, wiretaps pretty much has been, been a federal government, U.S. Attorney General type stuff where you'd, you know, like FBI could use it. And, um, but Wisconsin had passed a law just, just recently that they could, um, in, in, in real specific terms, you could use a wiretap. So they, um, they set this wiretap up then on, on, um, on Brian Hussong's girlfriend. And because he didn't really have a place that he lived of his own, he lived as this girlfriend. And they eventually um, put the pressure to him by get, getting this wiretap and then starting to set up a, a series of, of um, visiting his grandmother, visiting his aunt, all these people they knew he was close to and, and, and doing search warrants to smoke them out, hoping he would call one of them and, and let them know that, hey, they're, you know, they're up to something. And they even put a DNR warden to follow him around and basically pop up everywhere he showed up, to pop up, make his presence felt. And eventually, um, Hussong made the mistake where he, um, he called his grandmother and said, don't, do, you know, you know they're, 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 do, they're up to something. Don't let them find that gun. Don't let them find that rifle. And mm. she said, and she, they, they got her on top tape saying, uh, you know, they, they, won't find, you won't, they won't find your rifle. And so then when they had that, and they, they took that to a voice identification expert and said, yeah, it's definitely his voice. And they um, then basically, you know, when they went to the grandmother's, went back to the grandmother, played the tape for her, she, she said, yeah, um, his aunt was here this morning and she, she has it now. So they quick drove to her place. I think they even brought the grandmother along and said, enough's enough, you know, what, you know give us that rifle. And she went in the back, and I think I think um, she hadn't reburied it yet. It was still like in this plastic case, plastic bag. It was still dirty and stuff, but it, but it was all taken apart, and placed real carefully into this plastic bag. So then they they did the front, the um, ballistics test on that rifle, and it was definitely the rifle that blew you know 
Gordon Lefebvre's, you know, neck apart. So then they, 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 they prosecuted him and, and, um, and got him. And then, so that was part one of my piece. Okay, the crazy thing about the savage murder of Warden Le- Neil Lefebvre. Lefebvre. Did I say Lefebvre? Yeah, you said Think Lefebvre. Think of that football player guy. Neil Lefebvre. There's a part two. There's a part two. In, in part two, you know, 10 years later, he escapes from prison. Big chase, big shootout, and the death's not over. There's more death to come. Da-da-da. We're going to keep talking to Pat here, but to find that part two and to find everything Pat writes about, Pat writes about all kinds of stuff besides people dying. He writes a lot of news items. Uh, you can just go find him and all of his work for us at TheMeatEater.com and search up Pat. You'll just find you'll find him in there. He's floating around all over. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide Armory's products are military and professionally formulated and approved, featuring a groundbreaking graphene-infused ceramic coating that is safe for all surfaces, providing unmatched protection for any firearm. Discover a new standard in gun maintenance. Order your advanced cleaning kits today at RiptideArmory.com. Riptide Armory, relentless performance for your firearms. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on Seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. I, for one, use it on all of my outboard engines up in Alaska every year. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs and here's one of those buddies max not the dog but the buddy i've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states u.s and canada different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees and it just doesn't stop working i'm a fan for life get 20 percent off your first purchase using code meat eater so go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more when you're a journalist and, and you spent your whole life as a journalist or your professional life outside of being in the Navy, when you go to like when you go to dig up 
and you're just reporting on these kind of forgotten stories of wilderness murders and mayhem and whatnot. Um, do you feel that there's not, do you, do you have an obligation where you need to do to contribute original work to it rather than yeah. just like rehashing oh, crazy definitely. shit that definitely. people like you're yeah. rehashing crazy shit that happened, but definitely. not doing anything. Right. Yeah, definitely. I, I, um, I, um, I try not, I mean, I still do a lot of Google searches on everything I write, uh -huh. but I still think there's nothing as good as a face-to-face -face or a telephone interview. It got, you know, like this Dale Morey warden that I talked about in the, in the article, um, stories like that where a man sleeps with a pillow, uh, a gun under his pillow for months and months and months, and then finally puts the gun away when, the, when he knows the guy's dead. Those are the kind of stories you don't get from Google, you know, and, yep. and I just... You know, again, you sound like the old fart talking about in the good old days and shit, but, um, you know, the idea of making <laughs> phone calls and driving over and knocking on doors, that's so crucial to being a good reporter and being a good storyteller, a good, good, good writer, you know, and, and I, I think, it, I, but the thing is, I've spent most of my career behind the desk doing freaking phone interviews. You know, I, I don't get out from behind my desk enough, mm -hmm. but, every, and, but every time I do, you're walking, you never... That's the fun thing about what I do for a living, and I'm not kidding around this. I get, I've gotten some of my best stories over the years in the bathroom. You walk in the men's room, you've been covering a meeting, people are saying shit back and forth, and they see you standing at the urinal, they walk over next to you and say, Durkin, if you want something on this, talk to so-and-so. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you guys just standing there taking a leak. Yeah. yeah. yeah I never <laughs> talked to anybody yeah. about doing that. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know what it is, but, you know, it's just, but I don't think it's just because it's a men's room, but I, th but I think part of it is the fact it's it's off the beaten path. It's, it won't be seen talking to you because, you know, a lot, a lot of your best sources over the years end up being people that don't want to be seen talking to you. Uh, you know, because yeah, yeah. I, I have just enough hatred among my fellow hunters in Wisconsin who don't like me for various things I've written over the years where they don't like, they want, they'll, they'll say to me, I don't want to be seen with you in this, in this public meeting. And so they'll, they'll call me later and then talk to me then. You know, yeah. So, but, but to get there, back to your question. Yeah, Durkin gets hate mail about about covering wildlife politics in Wisconsin. People oh, get fired it's, up. It's horrible stuff. But mm. um, but I, but, but, but <laughs> what's, what's funny about though, is that I save all that. I I don't I don't read it over and over again. But um, I, I save all those kind of things. Fueled and, by haters, Pat Durkin. <laughs> yeah. But but the thing but the thing is, I found one time a, a guy a, a farmer in South Dakota a couple of years ago left me a note on my windshield, was mad at me because I'd, where I'd parked, in, it was in December and they were harvesting the corn out there. And this guy left me a really, um, we don't want your cheese heads out here hunting in South Dakota. You're blocking the roads while we're doing this harvesting and we're, you know, while we're feeding the country, you're, you're just out here having fun hunting our deer. And it really touched the nerve. Yeah, and it really pissed me off. And I, I, um, you didn't bring him some cheese curds and spotted cow I, afterwards? Well, I, I don't know who he was. I mean, I saw this big combine out there. And when they went went out, I didn't know if they'd stopped at my truck, you know. But I don't know if he wrote it, wrote it in the, you know, while he's still out in the field, and then left it at, you know, on, the, on the run as he went out or what. But, but you know, it was, it was kind of what I was, what I was referring to. It, what I found funny about myself was that I tore the letter up, this note up. I, I pissed, I was so pissed off that you asshole. I, I chucked it into the, into the wind, and then I thought, no, why did I got? And then when I got home back to Wisconsin, I thought, kind of save all that stuff. That's kind of like my little. Um, 
you know, mementos of my career is, you know, I, I, have, I have a big sign in my office at home where they, they, had, they put my name with the Ghostbuster um, cross across it, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> of your opinions about deer management? Well, that was from my, that was from my sports writer days. I, 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 I wrote a column one time, pissed off some of the local sports people, and, and they, they, they picketed me at one of the basketball games years ago. Isn't it funny that electronic communications don't have the weight that, like, I still have files I have files of like early correspondence. I became, fr- I'm friends with you largely because I'm friends with Doug Dern. Exactly. I became friends with Doug Dern because Doug Dern wrote me a letter. Mm-hmm. I mean, he might have emailed. I can't remember how, how it was. They can, it kind of, that kind of like goes against my point. But I have, so skip that part. I have files at home of like physical correspondence. Yeah. That someone would go through the hassle and, and I would save it. And I still have it like all saved. Right. And I have like all the notes for my books yeah. and note, all my like kind of records. And then you enter the electronic age, it just ends. Yeah. I don't too. save any correspondence, none of that stuff. Don't save hate mail. Like, if you'd have wrote me a hate mail in the mail, dude, I would have totally put that in my files. Yeah. But a hate mail email, yeah. zero thing. Yeah. Now that we work on books through Drive, Google Drive, yeah. I don't have any, but I have all my old drafts of books, all my notes of books. And now it's like information is valueless. Yeah. Like I, that shit. Yeah. It just has no, there's no, there's no thing that feels like something to hold on to with it. But yeah. I, at one time we had like a real, we had like a death threat. Uh, I had a threat against me and my kids and it was an email and man, the FBI doesn't look at it that way. Right. Right. Th- that dude could have written it in blood and mailed it to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, they went through his garbage. Hmm. Yeah. They took the email yeah. like yeah, I, real I mean, serious, but I can't take them that seriously. Yeah. I, I feel like, Hey, it, it was too easy for you to send me the note. Right. Anybody could send that yeah. stupid ass note. Yeah, yeah I, I um, I've I've gotten threatened. You know, I've had a couple of guys wave fists under my nose at public meetings. But you know, but I think, what am I gonna do? I'm, I'm five foot eight. Most of these guys fit me like you know, Giannis's size. I'm not gonna. You'd be you know, outrun them, sons of bitches. I could probably outrun them. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can get out the door, I'd be gone. Um, here's but, here's another. Yeah. I got another question for Go you about how you're gonna handle this. Like, okay. you want to do a thing about the Edmund Fitzgerald? Yeah. Yeah. What's there to say? Oh God! There's so much to say if you're a geek, you know. Really? It's, it's like if you're a Kennedy assassination buff, like I used to be. You could, I could write about that stuff all day. So there's like more shit has gone on with the Edmund Fitzgerald oh, right, than is captured it, in Gordon Lightfoot's you, Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh, right, you talk about you know you like that expression, um, that expression, um, making its own gravy. Oh yeah. Uh, Edmund Fitzgerald is just such a rich, rich story. It makes its own gravy. Yeah, it's just for some reason you know people. I, I was, I've always thought it'd be fun to interview Gordon Lightfoot about the whole thing, but, um, he's, people, he's still kicking. Oh yeah. Yeah. I saw him in concert just two years ago. Oh, I've yeah. seen him twice. I, I've seen him tw- at least 12 times. You've seen Gordon <laughs> oh, 12 times? At least, wow. at least, at least I went to see times. Gordon Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and everybody's there just to watch him do Edmund Fitz. Yeah. Especially yeah. in that town. Oh, sure. It's yeah. like when you go to see like a uh, Marshall Tucker band, you know, you're just like, everybody wants to hear him do Can't You See? Yeah. Or if it's like Head East, they want to hear, save my life, you know? <laughs> So everybody's sitting there waiting for him to do Edmund Fitzgerald. Right. Just like, you know, biding your time. Right. I mean, you might get a little excited about sundown, right? right? But most of you are there for that. And he knows it's coming, man. And he knows that's why people are there. And he doesn't do it right away because everybody's going to leave. Mm-hmm. But toward the end, he says um, something to the effect of, uh, he goes, you know, it was 21 years ago this November. And people just stand up, man. Right. The whole right. place goes ballistic. Yeah. They're cheering before they heard the song. Oh, sure. They're just here to remember the Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah. Because people from that town died. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It, it's, um, 
one, one of the things that I always give him credit for, and, and it kind of irritates me when people say, if it weren't for Gordon Lightfoot's Edmund Fitzgerald song, no one would know about the Edmund Fitzgerald. I think that's true. And it's true, I think, but give Gordon Lightfoot credit. That guy put down a masterpiece there. I mean, he, he, he tapped into something very much in the human psyche that humans are haunted by that kind of stuff. Yeah, like and, Michigan steams, and, 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 like a young oh, man's it's, dreams. It's beautiful stuff, yeah. you know, mm. and wonderful, wonderful images. And I think, you know, about 20 years before that, um, this ship called uh, Carl Bradley went down to Lake Michigan. And they even had, I think, two survivors in that one. They had like 33 guys die and, and two survived. Well, no one wrote a song about the Carl Bradley. And I've never even heard of the damn thing yeah. and I'm from there. Yeah. And, and, and there's actually a, a Carl Bradley park up on, up in Munising, Michigan, up on top of the lake. And then, um, then also like in 1966, on Lake Huron, a ship called the Daniel J. Morrill went down with, um, I think one guy survived that. And it was really a sad story because the guy um, went out there and realized the ship's breaking up and there was a life raft and he jumped in it with four other guys. And as the ship broke up, a big wave kind of washed over this thing. I, th I, I might be getting the story wrong, but I'm sure somebody will look up, look at them on Wikipedia and correct me on this, but ended up with only two guys left on the life raft. And the one guy that survived was out there for like over, over um, 36 hours, I think. They didn't, hmm. they didn't know a ship was down for the longest time. How many guys died? Um, it was like 33. And I never heard yeah, of that yeah, boat. Yeah. So the moral, the moral, the cool, st a cool story about the moral. Oh, I want to, you got the, I want, moral. I want to know the moral of the story. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably pronouncing it right. It's, it's spelled, um, it could be pronounced morale for all I know, M-O-R. R E L L. Morale. Oh, that was the boat. Yeah, that's a that's a ship. Oh, they're gonna tell me the moral of the story. No, no, which no. is something about <laughs> Gordon Lightfoot. No, oh. no I'll, I'll probably get back to that at some point. I'm, I'm rambling here, but but the Daniel J. Morrill went Morrill went down in 1966. No one wrote a song about that. But those are the three biggest ships to sink on the Great Lakes. But we don't even know about Edmund Fitzgerald because you know it was a, it was a big song written about. So, <laughs> Dude, it's, so it's so it's a haunting song. And it's, man. And it's, My kids like that song. Oh, I mean, I remember in the Navy that that song came out when I was in my first year in the Navy. And it came out in the summer of 76. And I, I remember when, when that song came out, I listed on, because I, like I was a Lightfoot geek. I, I bought almost all his albums that he's ever put out. But when that song came out, that album came out, Summertime Dream in 1976, I was home on leave. I bought it in downtown Madison, brought back, played it. That song came out. I thought, holy shit, I remember that. Because I, I was watching the news that night, and, they, and it was the next night. And they had a segment on the evening news about this ship going down in Lake Superior. And so I thought, and I started reading the lyrics through it because he had the lyrics in, in, inside the album. I thought, holy shit, he's wrote a song about this. And, and then I, I started like playing. a masterpiece, man. It was a masterpiece. Just a Does anyone know where the love of God oh, goes? Oh, God, that's, that's yeah. those lines there. When people say, when, <laughs> I, I tell you. Man, see, I want to hear the song. I mean, I've heard, the song? I, I've heard it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah shit, like, like, I want to like pause and like listen man. to the song. I got to say, I did not imagine the pod at turning into a Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, <laughs> well, I admire I admire good writing, and that that song is good. Yeah, writing. he was visited by an angel or something when yeah. he wrote that. Because yeah. the rest of his stuff's good, but it's not that good, man. Yeah. A lot of it's kind of annoying. <laughs> that Don Quixote song of his, I love it all. I'm, I'm a I'm a real I'm a real Gordon Lightfoot. Like Sundown is a Sundown's beautiful yeah. song. Yeah, because all about un unfaithful people and you know, Ugh. you know, having affairs and going around. The know, Dandy Warhols covered "Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald." Yeah, shitty yeah. version. Yeah, it's not I, worth the time. I, when I listen to other people do the song, I think oh, you, need, you need you need Gordon Lightfoot's prime to sing that song right. But um, <laughs> the, but you know when people 
act like they'll, they'll read about the Fitzgerald and they'll hear about the Fitzgerald and say, yeah, it went down so fast they didn't have time to, to send a, a, um, a, an SOS. And so it happened real suddenly. So these guys probably didn't, didn't know what was going on. I thought, man, you, if you think that, you've never been on a ship. Because when you're on a ship, you feel every freaking little mm. thing that's going on. And I, I, mean, I remember laying my rack in the Navy across the North Atlantic. You feel that big ship rise, riding up these big waves. And then when it start coming down on their side and you just sit there in your rack, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. Call boosh. Yeah, I got it. And they're yeah. just, you could just picture the spray coming off. You know, so when those guys in the Fitzgerald, you think those guys lived in that ship for months at a time, back and forth across the lakes. And they're out there in the worst storm the captain's ever seen, you know, and and they knew the ship had a history of having a weird twist in, the, in, in, in heavy seas where it, it, it would have, its nose would, his bow would twist and creak. And, and, and it was common to them. Well, that's a known thing about that yeah, boat. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently the captain um, knew about it and it scared him. And so I could go into a whole thing about why I think if he'd been, if he'd survived it, why, if they had a, if they have a court martial system for, for um, Great Lakes captains, he should have been court martialed, you know, and, and out. Yeah. But um, 7 p.m., the old cook came well, on yeah, up yeah. and said, it's, fellas, it's too rough to feed Yeah, because it. It, I mean, the, <laughs> this, this, ship had, this ship had enough things wrong with it where the guys knew about it, and yet that guy, that captain, drove it into the freaking storm that he should have known better. And, Killed other, 29 sailors. Yeah, other, other captains knew better. The captain that left port uh, two hours after him, who, who was, um, took his job seriously, knew how, to do, knew how to do weather reports, analyze weather information coming in, he knew this was not a, a storm to fuck with. You know, that this is a storm you go up and st- you hug that northwestern corner of that, of that lake and, and even anchor if you have to, drop the hook and anchor. And so why isn't there a song about that guy? That's human nature yeah, right there. Yeah. Why don't you know, we do a song about the guy that didn't go into the storm? Yeah. <laughs> the, well, uh, uh, you know, in the song, he says like they would have made Whitefish Bay if they put 15 more miles behind her. Yeah. We used to spear whitefish in Whitefish Bay yeah, in, yeah. in the winter yeah. when it's frozen, you know. And yeah. I used to always sit. You can see quite a ways when it's all iced over, you know. Yeah. We sit out there, and when I wasn't, like, busy doing whatever we were doing, fishing and stuff, I'd always kind of look out yeah. thinking of that tune, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's haunting, man. Well, I could talk about that all day. The one thing I want to make sure I tell you that I came across when I was reading about Fitzgerald, because I'm, I'm working on a, on a piece right now for Meat Eater about um, November Gales and that this, um, you know, I, Last year, Spencer wrote a neat piece about the Armistice Day storm. They killed all the duck hunters. killed all the duck hunters, and that was November 11th. Well, the Fitzgerald went down November 10th. Um, the, the, Dan, the Carl Bradley went down November 18th. The, um, the, the Morrell went down November 29th. There was ha- Halloween storms. I mean, you can go through and find a storm after a storm after a storm that comes through that time of year. And, and they're, they're, I mean, they're real gals, and they, they, they generate forces of um, like 50-mile-an-hour winds up to 90-mile-an-hour winds and waves up to 35 feet, 40 feet. And the Fitzgerald, one of the little-known pieces, but what, what destroyed it was that um, it had been given, this, given permission to carry, I think, um, three extra feet of iron ore pellets in its, in its cargo holds. And so that drove it down to where it was only about 11 feet of, of freeboard, you know, water above uh, – space above the water level. And so when this thing was crossing the lakes in the storm, it was, you know, sitting three feet lower in the, in the water than what it was actually built for. And these, these ore carriers too, people should realize they weren't built like Navy ships and passenger ships where there's all these watertight bulkheads inside the ship. It was basically 
huge, huge cargo areas, three huge cargo areas filled with these, there's like 21 hatch covers on top. Yeah, it's like a wheelbarrow floating around full of shit. Exactly, yeah. a great description. And the, 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 all they had in between is basically the mouse to a freaking screen like we have here in the room. You know, I mean, it's metal, but it's not going to stop water from coming in, in and out of its compartments. And um, the other thing that where I blame the, the captain for it was that they, did not, they were not serious about keeping the hatch covers um, cl- clamped down. Um, when I was in the Navy, so like our old guy again, but I thought, there were certain hatches on a ship that are always dogged down, always dogged down, never opened, you know, for watertight integrity. And this, this ship, they went out there, they had 16 clamps around each of those 21 openings, holding down a five sixteenth inch piece of metal. And these hatch, these hatches are about, I think they're 11 feet wide and 48 feet long. And... They only had two clamps holding those down instead of all 16 mm. all clamped down. And this, and the investigations came out later that, that they, they said this McSorley, the captain, hadn't been good about um, maintaining the, 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 um, the gaskets on those, on those hatches or the combing on those, on those hatches. And then they'd come and go to sea with only two things clamped down, which is not just that ship, but a lot of those ships didn't do that. So it was real, it was real lack stuff. I wonder why Gord, uh, why Gord didn't take any pot shots at the cat when, um, when he wrote he, that tune. He, he actually did, you know, like later in, in his, this is really geeky Is, stuff. is it hiding in the song? No, no. Oh. Um, there's a part of the song, though, he rewrote in, about the hatch covers for 7 p.m., the main, a main hatchway caved in, and, he, and, the cat, cat, and the hook says, fellas, it's been good to know you. Well, Lightfoot felt guilty later in life because that was never really um, some investigations. The initial Coast Guard investigation pretty much blamed the hatch covers mm-hmm. that they caved in, and Lightfoot um, either, knew, either knew about that or... But he wrote his song before the, all the investigations were oh, final. Oh, I got you. But um, he felt guilty about this was implying blame on the crew. And me, I look at it and that's not the crew. The crew might not have done their job of batting, batting down the hatches, dogging down those hatches. No, that's on the captain. You know, the first thing you learn in the Navy is that everything stops the captain. You know, if, a yeah, ship, yeah, if, they yeah. have, if they have a collision and the captain's in his rack in the middle of the night, they don't. They don't um, throw out uh, the ensign that was on deck that that night. They throw out the. They, they go down and get the captain, and he's done, because they figure he did not. He did not um, put the discipline into his his crew to do things right every time, and I think that's one thing. Um, if you're if you get drilled in the idea that there's a right way, a wrong way, and a navy way, you never forget that. That mm-hmm. um, these kind of jobs are tedious. Battening down 16, 16 clamps. On 21 hatch covers, it's, it's probably got to take all day. It's probably tedious as hell, but but damn it, it keeps the ship more stable, more watertight, and it should have been done, and it wasn't done. So yeah. Plus, plus the ship too, the final geeky thing. This is these are ships too that were built before the days of modern computers, where they could put a ship model on a computer, subject it to waves, computerized, watch how the ship twists. But you know, to get back to your comment about the Sioux locks. They built the ships to fit the Sioux locks, not the other way around. And so they built these ships, but they're too long for the, for the width of them. And so they created this weakness in these ships. And so like they, they, uh, this, one of the um, Fitzgerald sister ships, they, I think they put it out of commission like um, later that year because they thought they had lengthened it more because the Fitzgerald was, was for a long time the biggest ship on the Great Lakes. It, it subsequently got 
wasn't the biggest, but still the biggest ship to have sunk in the Great Lakes. Uh, titillate me real quick. Hit me with some titillation on the, um, you're working on the 1940, I don't even know what they are, the oh, bullhead murders? Bullhead murders, yeah. Um, like hit, hit me with some quick titillation. Yeah, yeah. They quick to close this out. It, 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 um, a, a guy was a commercial bullhead um, fisherman. That's the thing? Back then it was. I go into that in the article that, that um Like he that, fished bullheads for commercial meat markets. Yeah. They they oh. not, they seen them, they did hook and line he bought from commercial fishermen. Really? Uh, uh not not just commercial fishermen, but day 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 in, day out fishermen. He'd buy bullheads from them. They had he had like people that would come in and clean them. What it, state? And this is in, in southern southern Minnesota. No shit, really? Southern Minnesota. I don't know that. Yeah, and um so it, so there was they, a market. There was a market bullhead a, a bullhead bullhead market. Well, I don't know if there's even fillets, just um the meat. And it, you know, they'd gut them and take the heads off and, and uh, skin them. What year is this? It's 1940. Okay. So on July 12th of 1940, um, they had been investigating this guy because Minnesota had a, had a law, uh, a bag limit on bullheads in that area because they, they were being hit so hard by the commercial market, they started kind of clamping down on this. And they had a possession limit of 50. Well, this guy was obviously going way past 50, but, you know, but it was still... It was one of those things you could dodge because other lakes, they weren't subject to that same size, same bag limit, like up in the Canadian border, the lakes of Minnesota weren't subject to that, but down here they were, over here they weren't. So this guy was kind of playing with that, you know, this, this commercial fisherman. Well, they, they finally um, cracked down on him. They, they had enough evidence to go in there and start putting the screws to him. One day, um, three guy, three wardens showed up, two, two showed up earlier in the day. And they didn't have a search warrant, and he just basically told them to get lost. And in, the, in, the, in that era, the game wardens did not have they, they did not have uniforms for the Minnesota um, Conservation Department. They did not carry um, state issued firearms. One of the guys had a had, a sta- had his own personal handgun, but he was not um, displaying it. He had it tucked away someplace. Well, um, so two guys go over there. He chased them out. They come back later with their, basically the lead warden, the lead investigator in this, in this case, who um, had run into at times with this uh, commercial fisherman. And they um, started putting the screws to him, and the, one of them asked him, well, do you, can we see your, your license, your know, commercial license? He said, yeah, I'll go get it. So he left this, this barn. He had a barn there, and he did all his fish processing in, walked across the yard to his house, went in his house, came back out with a 12-gauge, semi-automatic 12-gauge. And the one warden says to him, there's no need to get smart with that thing. And he says, I'll show you who's smart. And he quickly shouldered his gun, shot the lead warden right in the chest at like 20 feet away, knocked him across into his garden, his flower garden. He fell dead. Swung instantly to the next guy who hadn't had time to turn yet, shoots him, kills him on the spot. The third warden was now trying to turn and get out of there. And he just bang, shoots him in the back, kills him. Really? Yeah. God, and I haven't heard of the story. Oh, yeah. That's. Well, well, what, I would say the power of meat eater, Steve. You write a good story in meat eater, people read it. And I, I got people writing to Spencer, you know, telling them about this, this 19 story. 1940s. Reminding you of old murders. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, um, they sent the story to, um, sent the story to Spencer. Spencer contacted me and then I started working on it. Huh. And, and, um, so you're going to find all the old principles and whatnot. Oh, that's, that's a sad thing. All those guys are so long gone. Oh. That, that's where I, I ended up doing, I interviewed, um, a, 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 a fisheries guy about the bullhead angle and talked to him about the bullhead angle and how why we don't have bullheads in that kind of quantity these days. And that's an interesting story in itself, a good story. And then um, I also uh, 
one of the guys who's like a de descendant of um, this warden whip who I mentioned talk about in the story, the first, the lead investigator, talked to him a little bit, but he was, uh, he was probably like a great grandson or grandson or didn't, didn't really know anything unique to it. So I, and then, but a, a guy in 19, in, a, a guy in 2012 though, wrote a, a, a hundred page book about it. And it's not a long book. You use type that you see like in a elementary school type um, yeah, for reading old, book. Old blind people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true too. It might be yeah. for old guys like me to read that book. But um, So yeah. when I set my document yeah. on 150% so I can read it without my glasses <laughs> that's, on. Man. Yeah. That's exactly it. So, so that, that's, I um, hope that was titillating enough. But that, that's that story. But then, so the guy kills himself and and um, they don't really ever know for sure why he did that and why he killed himself and why he, the only thing they can speculate is that um, he knew he was losing his, his empire, basically. He's no, no longer going to be the his bullhead. Losing his bullhead, yeah. yeah. Shoot a few people, your yeah. bullhead empire is going to yeah. suffer. Right. God, oh, man, death with Dirk. <laughs> Dude. Thank you. I'm glad things went the way they did in that old speakeasy <laughs> deal all them generations ago, man. You wouldn't be sitting here with us. Well, yeah, I wouldn't know what you wouldn't know what, so. No, that's a good point. <laughs> we might be talking to someone more interesting. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> We might add a. Yeah. Can, can I tell a New York Times? Can I tell you a New York Times story real quick? You want to tell me a New York Times story? Yeah, real quick. We're going to close out with it. We're close out because we're done. Um, you talk about things that you save. Mm -hmm. Back around 1983, 84, my um, my late father-in-law said he had good contact at the New York Times, and to get me a job there, all I had to do is put together a, a little packet of my material and and my resume and send it out to New York Times and they'd get me a job. And I thought, I'll do that. Should get a chance to work for the New York Times? Sure, you know. So I did my package, sent it out there, and about a month later I got this, uh, like a one or two sentence letter and they got my name wrong. It said something like, Dear Mr. Duncan, uh, no jobs for, we have no jobs for you in Prospect. And the guy sent his name. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I had a guy the other night. The, 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 this is the last story. So you know, you know, McCormick McCarthy yeah. is a famous recluse. Um, doesn't like talk to anybody. Won't do interviews. Um, I heard a story the other night when I was, I was in Chicago for I was doing a fundraiser event for Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, like a meet and greet type thing. Yeah. And a guy was telling me a story because he knew I'm, he knew I'm a great admirer of the work of Cormac McCarthy, and he told me a story about some guy he knows that was going to Santa Fe, where Court McCarthy lives. He's going to Santa Fe and wants to meet him, but he knows he doesn't like to meet anybody. So he writes him this letter saying, like, I know you don't like to talk to anybody, um, but, you know, if I could just talk to you for 10 minutes, right? No reply. I don't know if it's true. This is the story the guy told me. No reply. He goes and does his trip to Santa Fe, comes home, time goes by, and eventually he gets a postcard from Cormac McCarthy. And the postcard says, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so he's got a sense of humor about it all. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah, I don't know if it's true or not. All right, well, keep, you're not going to retire, are you? Nope, no plans. How old are you? 65. I'll be 66 in January. Social Security kicks in, though, huh? Yeah, well, it has, but I haven't claimed it yet. Really? Yeah. Good for you. I, I'm waiting until I'm 70, so I can max out. You're going to dig in, though. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I, like like Yana says, I'm going to fight this to the end. You, you paid know? in, man. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 my wife's already on. She's, you don't get tattoos on Medicaid and all that, do you? They don't pay for that no, kind of stuff. You got to no. pay a cash. No, and, and, and you know, I, I, I could, we, we could talk all day about my ideas on tattoos. So, 
Oh, Spencer Newhart. I don't know if he's really going to do this or not, but is he doing this? I don't know this idea. Spencer says that in our auction house of oddities to raise money for our land access initiative, yeah. Spencer says he's going to auction off the right to pick a one inch tattoo on him. Oh, you can wow. pick whatever you want it to be. Yeah, I I I told wow. my I, I told my join him. I said if you if you do that, I'll we can do it side by side. I'll do that. Oh, you'll get one too. Yeah, so we can yeah. auction that off. Yeah, that's great. It, even Man, so, if someone, tough. oh, we we got to go there. So let's just say they're like hundred thousand bucks. I want it, but we're gonna put a little uh, one inch by one inch penis and balls on you. <laughs> no, no, you're, gonna ha- you're gonna have to. Take I was gonna it. say an anus, but yeah, we'll go with that. Mm. Well, if I get if I get to choose a spot, I, I'd, but you I would, would do it. I would do for it. conservation. Yeah, for conservation. But I'd have to choose a spot. I wouldn't be someplace visible. Yeah, I went. Yeah. I, I, I have these pencil-sized arms. I went put them on my arm. Yeah, <laughs> did Spencer you tell hide you? It, you could hide it in your butt cheeks. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, like, that, no that, that'll know. feel real good. <laughs> that, 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 no one oh, would know. That, that'd be God. sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> did Spencer tell you what his second tattoo was? I don't want to blow his his spot up, but it's so good. He, he, he got the Ham's mascot carrying a giant morel mushroom. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Dude, <laughs> how old is he? Yeah, I think he's 30. Yeah, it's 29. Uh, Can we just start a whole nother one right now and start in with tattoos? <laughs> no. Oh, you, you got, if you got something to add, then we're closed. No. No, no, no. We'd, have to, start a, we'd oh. have to start a whole nother podcast right now. No, I can't. I can't. <laughs> Next time. Next time. Pat, thanks for coming on, man. That's you. Oh, we'll have to have you back out. Like, you came out probably a year ago. Two and a, it's been two and a half years already. Holy been moly. Yeah. Since we talked about that sonar yeah. enthusiast that found all the dead people. We never talked about him. What? No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm confusing my sonar experts. Yeah, that, that was... Um, that, that was <laughs> I do that often. Because <laughs> well, I've written for Meat Eater about another guy that's found even more people like that doing that. God. Yeah. yeah I have, um, that was two and a half years ago when we did that podcast about, about Rick Krieger down in, down in Mass and finding, finding uh, the guys. That was a good one. Yeah. That, those guys in the bottom of Lake, Minona, Lake Wingra. Yeah. Lake Wabisa. Lake Wabisa for 46 years in the bottom of that lake in that car that, right. yeah that was two and a half years ago already ladies and gentlemen Pat Durkin Thank Durk you. on deaf yeah thanks Pat thanks, thanks for coming on Pat making the trip alright bye see you soon Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. 
Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. 